Harry Truman was, in the words of one of his biographers, a man of the people. Truman was the guy who might live next door to you. Harry Truman was born on May 8, 1884, and grew up in Independence, Missouri. Harry Truman came from very modest means. His father was a farmer. He didn't have the money to go to college. He's our only president in the 20th century to not have a college degree. He was a member of the National Guard, and when World War I broke out, at age 33, he enlisted and became a captain and served in France. After World War I, Harry Truman opened a men's clothing shop in Kansas City, Missouri, and married Bess Wallace. There's a lot more to Harry Truman than just having a great student of history. He's been a really heroic captain in World War I, and he'd grown up in the Pendergrass political culture of Missouri which was a real petri dish for learning how to be a good politician. In 1934, Harry Truman was elected to the U.S. Senate, where he served until 1945 when he was elected vice president. And not too long after he's in office, FDR dies suddenly, as he said, talking to the press. Boys, he said, the weight of all the planets in the world at this moment. He made some big, big decisions right away, notably that we're going to attack Japan with the first explosion of an atomic weapon. In 1945, President Truman ordered the dropping of two atomic bombs on Japan to avoid a costly land invasion of Japan and end the war quickly. Truman also saw the need to change the makeup of the military. Harry Truman signed an executive order that integrated the United States military in 1948. He did it cleanly, without any agonizing, because he thought it was the right thing to do and didn't listen to any uh, objections. And that helped pave the way for the civil rights Soon after the end of World War II, the Cold War with the Soviet Union began. Truman knew the threat of the rise of communism out of Moscow. He also understood the best way of dealing with that is to rebuild the Rebuild it economically, rebuild it culturally, rebuild it politically and make it part of the alliance. The Marshall Plan provided economic aid to the countries of Western Europe. After the introduction of the Marshall Plan came to in response to Stalin's decision to blockade the city of Berlin, the airlift was an incredible success. It showed that the United States was committed to protecting the nations of Western Europe from the incursions of communism. During Truman's first term as president, his approval ratings plummeted when the United States became involved in the Korean War. People were exhausted by war and the sacrifices that had been made. And he faced the prospect of running against the greatest American hero of World War II, Dwight Eisenhower, who was kind of everybody's grandfather and everybody's hero. So he wisely stepped down and stepped out of the way. Truman retired as president of the United States in January, 1953. 
After he left office, he basically went back to Independence, Missouri and led a very quiet life. Truman died the day after Christmas in 1972. He lived a long life. He was 88 years old. And he was a very unassuming, simple man, elevated to the presidency. And yet, when you look over his time in office, he was a strong leader. Welcome to the Tori Says Show. So today you're going to learn about um, some really weird, no, not weird, evil uh, organization that has been hiding in plain sight. And for those of you on Facebook, uh, the feed will cut um, right after I begin so I wanted to remind everyone who Harry Truman was. And remember, he's the only president with no uh, college degree and how he became president. Because I, I know a lot of people do a lot of research and the research that they do kind of always circles to things like the Atlantic Council, the Council of Foreign Relations, but when you realize that the people that hold high seats in those organizations actually get accepted to belong to an even more specific one, it'll blow your mind. An organization that had people like Hunter Biden as their CEO. Yes, Hunter. And how Jake Sullivan was part of it too. And huh, wait till you see what you're about to um, learn, because this is where you see how they hide in plain sight. So in order for you to understand it, I want you to listen uh, to some lyrics of a song, listen, and it's actually uh, being sung by someone that can help you hear the words. All right. So here we go. Listen to the words before we kick this off. told me when I was young come sit beside me my only son listen closely to what I say if you do this it'll help you some sunny day Take your time, don't live too fast. Troubles will come, they will pass. Find a woman, yeah. 
Don't forget Sunday summer up above and be simple. It's really hard, right? In a complicated world that we live in, how do we become simple? That's a question that many people ask themselves. And that's kind of impossible because the world is so complicated only because they've complicated it for us. And they've created a reality that everyone abides to. And you have to understand that the only reason that things exist in this reality is because you accept it universally. So I thought that um, to introduce this organization that nobody talks about, but you've probably heard about, and the only reason that they skirt under the radar is because of Harry Truman, right? Because of Harry Truman, nobody, nobody pays attention. So I thought it would be important that we take a look at things that you've probably never spotted in the Truman Show. Here we go. And it's another beautiful day in paradise, folks. But don't forget to buckle up out there in Radio Land. Remember, good driver. Good, 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 good. So as you see, the dark faded frame around it kind of shows that people are watching him, right? It's an internal source of recording and connecting the viewers watching at home. Now, for those of you on the podcast, I'll try to describe what we're watching. He's heading west on Stewart. Stand by all extras. Gloria, he'll be on you in about 90 seconds. Pops, make sure the coffee's hot. Okay, he's making his turn on the Lancaster Square. The signal. So the long life secret was about to be revealed due to mixed signal that made it into Truman's car. Truman faces all kinds of obstacles to distract him from the truth. So obviously we knew who Truman was and there was cameras wobbling, right? I'm, I'm just explaining it, not reading it. But if you notice, they're wearing the color red. So as, as you see on your screen, he's walking in the opposite direction. He realizes the red. And now he does something spontaneous, right? We said the red color of the actors. So now it's showing you that he's in the car. Truman. His wife is there. She's wearing red and green. Honey, are you okay? Get in. So this is where she gets into the car with that spontaneous scene. Shall we go? So you saw how she nicely turned to the back where there was a camera asking for help. You know, I'm going to have to call your mother when we get there. She's going to be worried sick. I don't know how she's going to take this. And obviously the police pull him over to stop the spontaneous incident. So she looked so relieved when the police were pulling up, didn't she? Now the threat. Check this out. Look at the product placement now. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. 
Huh. So she's posing and putting in commercial break. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other Cocos. This is the best. What the hell? So obviously it had to be on there for like a full 30 seconds or a minute, right? So she had to keep talking about the cocoa. This had to do with anything. Tell me what's happening! Well, you're having a nervous breakdown. That's what's happening. You're part of this, aren't you? Ruin! <laughs> Whoa. Meryl, you are scaring me! So she grabs a weapon and freaking out. I didn't say anything. You said you said. No, I didn't talk. I wasn't talking to anybody. No. Talk to me. I don't know anything. Please stop. Stay where you are. So obviously he's not hearing scary music, but the audience that's watching the Truman Show is. Interesting, huh? This is the freaky part. When he gets to the end of his world. And then, and then what do you see? You see that the guy that created the whole show is talking to him as if he's God. I I'm your creator. I created this. Who are you? I am the creator. Hmm. Pay attention. Was nothing real? You were real. That's what made you so good to watch. Listen to me, Truman. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. So there's no more truth out in reality than the truth that I created in the world for you. Huh. I wonder what kind of God would say that. <laughs> same lies. The same deceit. It's all same lies and life. deceit either way. You have nothing to fear. But in the one that I created for you, you don't have to worry about it. That's it. I'm just trying to protect you, Truman, from the pain and harm of the real world on the outside. Don't step outside. I love you. Right? That's it. They're all fakers. In case I don't see you. Don't want to be Good ya. afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> so here's where he decides, I'm going into the real world. I'm not going to stay in here. He decided it. He said... Hey, I would prefer to live amongst real people that are fakers than fake fakers. Hmm, interesting. Truman. True man, Truman. Truman. What is true? It's like nobody knows what's true. Nobody does. And how would you when everything is being run by organizations you don't even know? Now, I'm going to 
show you an advertisement from 2013 by this true man that's shaping reality, not just for you, but for everyone, right under your nose, shaping your government, your foreign policies, everything, everything, shattering any reality you might think that you have control. And they all do this, and apparently to open secrets, they're only getting a less than a million dollars a year in their 501c. And it's so weird when you have people like Hunter Biden as your CEO and all these big names, you know, former advisors to Obama, former advisors to Gore, all these little rats are there and that's all you have. I mean, I, mm, how are you paying them with less than a million dollars? How are you paying all these? And then you have all these chapters across the nation, 16 states, I think, there are 47 chapters. Obviously, a lot of them are in California, right? What, Tori? We didn't tell them Joe sent you. This is Joe, G.I. Joe. But you probably called him Grandpa or Poppy. He was tough like Chuck Norris, but real. And when he wasn't busy wooing your grandma, he steamrolled through the Great Depression and right on across Europe. But Joe wasn't done, because if the world couldn't get it together, these guys would take over. Joe knew the foreign aid, international development would keep America safe and strong. So he and his buddies rebuilt Europe, roads and schools, prosperity. And his kids dug wells in the Peace Corps and took out smallpox around the world. Development made the world safe and strong. Because that, my friend, is what Americans do. This is Chris. You probably saw him playing high school baseball. Today, Chris is patrolling the streets and taking out terrorists in Afghanistan. Chris knows Al-Qaeda's coming right back. If these folks don't have the roads and police and schools to keep them out, does that sound familiar? International development, keep us safe, make America great. Call Congress, tell them to fund foreign aid. Tell them Joe sent you. Huh, tell them Joe sent you. Oh, sure will. <laughs> Joe sent you? Wait. Still haven't told you what this organization or who this organization is, not yet. You got to see all this great stuff they do. You should. It's quite important. And how they're always on Chinese television. Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Which one should I show you? Which good stuff have they done? Should we? Hmm. Let me see. Nope. Yeah, let's try the Iran deal. It's promised to work. And how the news will tell you. Oh, oh, and by the way, that tell them Joe sent you video is from 2013. Mm. Very interesting organization that supposedly doesn't have a lot of money. And you have to think, how do they operate? The president's promise to work with Iran was a topic of discussion among local leaders at the Embarcadero today. Former State Assemblyman and Iraq veteran Nathan Fletcher and Congressman Scott Peters stood with other members of the Truman National Security Project. They said they support the agreement with Iran that includes the country allowing international inspectors in to look at their nuclear weapons in exchange for lifted sanctions. After more than a decade of war, a disastrous war, where thousands, including many of my friends, have died, where trillions of dollars has been spent, where American prestige has gone down, I think it's time that we give peace a chance. If Iran fails to live up to the terms of this agreement, we can always bomb them later. 
Military action is always an option. But if you try peace first, you preserve military action. Congressman Scott Peters called the deal the best option, adding it keeps Iran from getting a nuclear weapon for 15 years. Other politicians argue it's a bad deal and that it's likely Iran will not follow through. In September, Congress will vote on the agreement. Let's talk more about the strategy meeting yeah. of anti-ISIL coalition members. Mike Lyons joins us from New York City. He's a senior fellow with the Truman National Security Project. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Welcome back Thanks. to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, the president of the United States warned that the campaign against ISIL will be a long one. We just heard it in Nathan's piece. And some would argue that the airstrikes aren't really working. So what do you think the next step will be? I think we'll continue with the airstrikes. I think there's some will say that the airstrikes are working. They were tritting ISIL and their capability to wage war. Uh, some of the targets that were hit were very strategic in nature. And uh, again, they lose capability uh, every time we have one of these airstrikes because we know it hits a target inside Syria. What do you make of the Syrian opposition not being invited to this major ISIL meeting? Much of what's taking place is happening inside Syria. Well, it shows that there really isn't a legitimate uh, opposition that they're ready to call uh, competent enough to actually fight and get involved in the battle. Uh, had they brought a group in there that wasn't ready, uh, they would have legitimized them. Uh, and then inside of Syria could have created other challenges and problems. So I think it was smart to only bring sovereign nations into this uh, until they're sure. Can you see that, that they're on Chinese sure TV? I just wanted to make sure you're paying attention. Uh, militia that actually rises up and leads uh, is actually going to be capable, competent and legitimate. You know, for several days now, even weeks, we've been reporting on what's taking place uh, inside Kobani, this border town near Turkey. How do you see this playing out? And what's a realistic conclusion to what's happening? It seems to there seems to be progress in this fight every single day for both sides. It is. And it just shows you the will of the Kurds there and the fighters that they have there, the uh, the PYD fighters there, this uh, offshoot of um, uh, the, the PKK, which is a, or PPK, which is in a different uh, group there inside of Turkey. Uh, they've got tremendous will. They, if they get reinforced, they'll do well. Uh, it's a Stalingrad situation. They're surrounded on all sides, uh, but they're fighting really for their lives. And it just goes to show you that ISIS and has, uh, has limitations and is not capable of taking this town that they should have taken weeks ago. So what happens beyond the airstrikes? I know you said that you think uh, that they're working, they will continue for some time, but um, again, this is going to be a long operation. Is, is this going to be a situation where um, the next step gets made up uh, as they go along? I, I think first and foremost, we have to get Turkey in the fold. I don't believe uh, that they are on board with attacking uh, ISIL inside of Syria. They're more focused on uh, their own concern as, as a government, which I understand countries act in their own best interests. But they're concerned about taking down the Assad government. I think they have to become more involved. They have by far the most competent ground force. So when ground troops uh, eventually enter in Syria, which what will happen, uh, Turkey ha will take the lead in that process. Now, they're also going to train some of these free Syrian militia. The question is, will they train them to fight ISIL or will they train them to go against the Assad government? And what are your thoughts on what's happening uh, with ISIL in Iraq as, as this group is getting closer and closer to Baghdad? They are clearly an existential threat to Iraq. Uh, and there's going to be a wake up there uh, with regard to the situation. Uh, they cannot continue to cut and run. They, uh, ISIL continues to uh, make progress. They take over military bases. And when they do things like that, they gain more military assets, uh, ammunition, uh, stockpiles uh, of supplies uh, that the Iraqis just seem to cut and run from. So there's going to be a reckoning inside of Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi government really still uh, has not come forward with a plan 
uh, inside as, as ISIL becomes closer and closer to Baghdad. I want to turn back to this meeting, Mike. Um, there are reports that a name for this operation will be revealed soon. I want to get the significance of that, as well as many more details surrounding what will take place. Are we getting too much information uh, out there in the public? Should, should this information be more secure? Well, I don't think so. I, the president has a responsibility in the United States to be as transparent as possible. He's actually you know, gone to war here without Congress's approval, working off an old uh, force uh, agreement from years ago. Uh, this is not normally how the United States goes to war. You would have thought Congress should have debated this. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, they haven't. So I think the president is already out on a limb as it is. He's got to be as transparent as possible. If all of a sudden General Dempsey says to, to the president, sir, we need 20,000 troops inside of Iraq, and here's why, the question is, will the president go along with that recommendation? Will he go back on his promise not to deploy U.S. troops there? All right. Mike Lyons, thank you so much for your time and your perspective as always. Thank you. The president's promise to work with Iran was So welcome to some knowledge. This is the Truman National Council, where people from the Atlantic Council are recruited to, where people from Circo, from all these Bilderberg, they all join this group, this group that has shaped every single U.S. policy. This group that has been hiding under the banner of Truman because we've got Truman Fellows, but which kind of Truman Fellows, right? Which kind of Truman Fellows do we have? Do we have the Harry Truman Trust Fund or is it the Truman National Security Council? The Atlantic Council is lower on the food chain than the Truman National Security Council. I want you to understand that lower on the food chain than the Truman National Security Council. That's the group that infiltrates our policies. Now, while everyone thinks that the agency, the CIA, Clown Central, is what makes the world go round on clandestine operations, you're fucking wrong. It's the State Department. Oh, Actually, it's fellows of the Truman National Security uh, Council. Yes. And they speak and they speak. And boy, are there big names attached to that. You know, we have a ton, a ton. And they've been hiding in just right there, right there, right there. Oh, man. But, you know, there was one person that kind of raised an eyebrow. So before we delve into a little bit more of the Truman National Security Project, I'm gonna introduce you to a patriot that I'm shocked. President Trump never tapped. <laughs> I'm very shocked. The only one that spoke up, the only one that put things and people in their place, literally. And I introduced you to this amazing woman last week. Where am I, Minneapolis? Where's my, where's my Minnesota people? Let me introduce you to a woman that has cojones so large, but I'll introduce you to her through how, well, I don't know if I can play this. See, they'll dock me. Damn. Just thought of that. Could be that, uh, that, um, you know, they'll say, Ooh, ooh you're, 
talking about things that you shouldn't. Well, how's we show what a big patriot she is? How's that? Let me well, show just... you a video from 2011. This woman is no longer in any office. She actually tried to run for office, president actually, and um, was lost in translation. SNL had ripped her apart bit by bit. I was a big fan. I mean, after Spectre went, had to find someone, right? Um, here we go. Uh, differently. I would have gone to the legislature, worked with them. But what was driving me was obviously um, making a difference about young people's lives. Cervical cancer is a horrible way to die. And I happen to think that what we were trying to do was to clearly send the message that we're going to give moms and dads the opportunity to make that decision with parental uh, opt-out. Parental rights are very important in the state of Texas. We do it on a long list of, uh, of vaccines that, that are made. But on that particular issue, I will tell you that I made a mistake by not going to the legislature first. Let me address um, uh, Ron Paul just a minute by saying I will use an executive order to get rid of as much of Obamacare as I can on day one. Congresswoman Bachman, do you have a problem with anything that Governor Perry just said? You're a mom. And I'm here's mom, the hero. And I'm a mom of She's three a hero. children. And to have innocent little 12-year-old girls be forced to have a government injection through an executive order is just flat out wrong. That should never be done. That's a violation of a liberty interest. That's ex little girls who have a negative reaction to this potentially dangerous drug don't get a mulligan. They don't get a do-over. The parents don't get a do-over. That's why I fought so hard in Washington, D.C. against President Obama and Obamacare. President Obama, in a stunning, shocking level of power now, just recently told all private insurance companies, you must offer the morning after abortion pill because I said so, and it must be free of charge. That same level coming through executive orders and through government dictates is wrong. And that's why, again, we have to have someone who's absolutely committed to the repeal of Obamacare. And I am. I won't rest uh, until it's Governor repealed. Perry respond. Uh, uh, was what you signed into law, that vaccine for 11 and 12 year old girls, was that, as some of your critics have suggested, a mandate? No, sir, it wasn't. It was very clear. It had an opt out. And at the end of the day, this was about trying to stop a cancer and giving the parental option to opt out of that. You know, this conversation that they had is going to be very, very important coming up soon, considering COVID. Um, keep putting the pressure on on everyone because that's really important. So now let's take a look at other amazing things this woman has said, because it's important to understand who the people that actually fight for the people are, because um, we kind of lose sight of that. I mean, a lot. Um, here's the Washington Post. It's a privilege for me. mocking her, mocking her. But we like her. Me now, Mr. Speaker, also to be in this well, to deliver what is my last speech on this floor. It has been the privilege 
and the honor of a lifetime for me to serve as a member of the United States Congress, serving as the first woman ever elected from the state of Minnesota in the capacity of being a Republican. It's an honor and it's the ride of a lifetime. Good evening, my name is Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from Minnesota's 6th District. How many do you suspect of your colleagues as being anti-American? What I would say, what I would say is that the news media should do a penetrating expose and take a look. I wish they would. I wish the American media would take a great look at the views of the people in Congress and find out, are they pro-America or anti-America? Hmm, kind of sounds relevant right now. Which person in Congress right now is pro-America and anti-American? I would say the majority is anti-American midst of many friends and many family members to announce formally my candidacy for President of the United States. Just make no mistake about it, I want to announce tonight, President Obama is a one-term president. Are you a flake? Well, I think that would be insulting to say something like that because I'm a serious person. Just like John Wayne was from Waterloo, Iowa, that's the kind of spirit that I have too. While John Wayne's parents lived briefly in Waterloo, the late actor was born in Winterset, Iowa, 150 miles away, and never did. John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer, lived in Waterloo. And to have innocent little 12-year-old girls be forced to have a government injection through an executive order is just flat out wrong. Well, I will tell you that I had a mother last night come up to me here in Tampa, Florida after the debate. She told me that her little daughter took that, uh, took that vaccine, that injection, and she suffered from mental retardation thereafter. It can have very dangerous side effects. The mother was crying when she came up to me last night. I didn't know who she was before the debate. This is the very real concern. And so I have decided to stand aside. And I believe that if we are going to repeal Obamacare, turn our country around and take back our country, we must do so united. And I believe that we must rally around the person that our country and our party and our people select to be that standard bearer. Decided next year, I will not seek a fifth congressional term. Be assured, my decision was not in any way influenced by any concerns about my being reelected to Congress. And rest assured, this decision was not impacted in any way by the recent inquiries into the activities of my former presidential campaign or my former presidential staff. So they mocked her. Do you know that in 2011, someone threatened her life? Oh, yes, they did on Twitter. And she filed a complaint. Did you know that? Yeah. And here's the thing. Here's what's really, really weird. That that person's identity was held close to the chest. In August of 2011, he tweeted, I desire to engage in masochistic activities with Bachman using a Vietnam era machete. The federal government ordered Twitter to reveal his identity called Mr. X in the grand jury subpoena, the man filed a motion to quash the order at the United States District Court of District Columbia in February of 2012. Then Chief Judge Royce Lambert denied the request, citing the seriousness of the threat it might pose to Bachman. But Mr. X was granted the redaction of his identity in a separate order. Oh, so he gets to remain anonymous, making a vicious threat against someone who threatened them.
Mm. What is she doing now? Well, let me show you some of her other achievements, which is quite important that you, that you learn. You need to know who this woman is. She's been talking, she's been pushing, and she's been saying, and no one listens. You know, Truman National Security Project actually talked about her. They actually did. And she said a few things that people didn't like, a lot of few things, especially what she said about President Trump. You should see this recent, well, recent-ish clip. It's on Vimeo. Let's go. This is from Right Wing Watch. Well, you know, it was said just before that we had a crucial moment four years ago when the intercessors in the prayer room down at KCM Ministries took to heart the different notes that we passed in to pray. And I think that we're at that moment now where the beauty of this show is that it's interactive. And all of our viewers who are watching, we need them. The body of Christ needs them. And we all need to join in with the intercessors that are praying even now. And I want to encourage with this particular scripture to pray this with me. It is Isaiah 43, 13. It says, from eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. And what I would say is that God has already sealed the results of this election. He has sealed it in heaven. And just as Brother James just told us, Satan wants to intervene with God's plans. And he has a certain amount of authority on this earth. But we as believers have greater authority because the scripture says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So that's why we can stand on this scripture. We can stand and say, number one, devil, you will not snatch out of God's hand what he is holding in his hand because he is God from eternity to eternity. And then the scripture goes on to say, no one can undo what I have done. So let's pray together now and say, Father, you are the God who is from eternity to eternity. And we say and decree and declare that no one, not even the devil himself, can snatch anyone out of God's hand. And no one, not even the devil himself, can undo what God has already done. Father, we thank you that you have sealed this election. We thank you that you are working according to your purposes. And Father, we declare mercy over the United States, mercy in this election. And we shout mercy, 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 mercy over this, to seal this in your name and in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so that's what she said. Uh, and I should show you some other things. See, she's on a list, right, with this uh, Truman National Security Council. And it's important that we understand who she is. Remember, she was the one that accidentally, and I'm using air quotes, um, 
probably the main thing pointed out that um they did an illegal strike we're going to talk about that because that's something that what has changed in the last decade though that, that uh, you would say that so here is right wing watch uh posting this video of this interview with her here we go take a listen to this what has changed in the last decade though that that you would say that you've seen there uh that's that's made such a significant impact on the culture I would say probably the main thing is, the, as would be true anywhere else, a loss of reverence for God and mm. of the things of God and a loss of reverence for his word and the truth of his word and turning away from the truths of his words to our own ways. And that brings us to a place of emptiness, ultimately yes. sorrow and sadness. And I think that's happened here in Minnesota as well. Also, the embrace of false gods. Because the first commandment is very important. And again, this is not to be legalistic. These are the laws that God gave to Moses for our good, not for legalism, to say that I am the Lord thy God. You know, thou will have no other gods before me. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. And so what God is saying is that we are to worship him and him alone, to know who he is, his attributes and his strengths. And in Minnesota, I think that there's been a turning away from that even from mainline churches, even from other churches where we don't necessarily revere the truth of his word. And instead, we've uh, many people have come to the Minnesota area that are not believers of the book. They're not Jewish and not Christian. That's not to say that God doesn't love all people. He does. Right. But when people embrace false gods, that brings an element into your society. And, you know, 30 years ago, we could say that there are false gods and that we shouldn't worship them. Today, it seems like we're not allowed to say that because that's considered not inclusive or not diverse enough. Right. But the fact is the word of God says that there's only one God to whom we serve. And there are false gods now here in the state of Minnesota. This is CNN. Tonight. I can't play that because they will remove it. That is SNL. I can't play that. So let me remove that while I get you the really good stuff. Okay. Here's where the really good stuff kicks in. There's two clips. So this is Mr. Brennan to the committee. This is where we see Mueller, Clapper, Brennan and General Flynn, all together being questioned. Being questioned about legal activities that the Truman National Security Council endorsed. Look at who is not happy. That's right. You know, if I was General Flynn, I would totally say, hey, this is what happened. This is why I got fired. Because I didn't agree with this. Mm-hmm. And you'll watch all of these two clowns perp walk faster than anything. Oh, you breached security. This is like a big OPSEC thing. Well, she already made it public. So it's not a question if this happened right before Benghazi. Oh, remember, I kind of talked about Benghazi. Oh, gosh darn it.
Committee. We would thank all of you for being here. I joined Mr. Lobiando. It is really an honor to be able to meet with the intelligence community all over the world, and we thank them for their work. My questions are regarding Iran and obtaining the nuclear weapon. I'd like to ask some questions about that, but before I do that, I'd like to ask a question of Director Brennan. When the White House conducted their armed drone strikes in North Africa, particularly in eastern Libya, prior to the attack on our mission in Benghazi on 911 last year, did the White House notify the State Department of the armed drone strikes before they were made? Uh, armed drone strikes in Libya? Um, I'm unknowing of, of such, and I would defer to the White House. What a liar. How do I know about it and you don't? Is this why my FOIA requests for the annex communications with Italy are being declined? To uh, address your question. Were there any armed drone strikes in Northern Africa that were made by the White House? White House doesn't have uh, a drone capability, responsibility, whatever, so... That's a lie. General Flynn, why don't you just do a little key tam and have these fuckers rounded up? I, I, Did they have any directives toward having armed drone strikes in North Africa? Uh, again, I don't know what it is specifically referring to, but... Let me clarify. Here's what we're referring to. We're referring to the Truman National Security Project recommendation. The documentation that was found in the annex in Italy. The one when you exit one of the locations, it's the one north, it's the most northern location, shall I point out the house too? That's where most of the documents are. Holy crap. Right before Benghazi happened, you set them up. Oh, oh and oh yeah. Those communications are also in those missing Hillary emails. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying. Crimes against humanity, anyone? Uh, again, I would defer to the White House on whatever happened at that time. Well, I can speak to the capability. The, the UAVs that were over flying over uh, Libya were military. UAVs, you know, unmanned aircraft vehicles, okay? That means video games, shooting. Here's where Clapper gives a little bit of credence. Hold on, let's start that again. Flying over uh, Libya were military and were unarmed. And so were there any armed drone strikes that were made in North Africa prior to 911? In Libya? I'm asking in North Africa. I'm asking the. I'm asking Director Brennan. Were there any armed drone Brennan, strikes that were made it. by the United States? Brennan, answer. North you want to ask yourself why was she going to Brennan? It's almost as if she had his communications. I'm just saying. It's almost as if she knew. I mean, didn't? Aren't you the? Oh, come on. It's like she knew. She was like, "Clapper, shut the fuck up. No one's talking to you, boy. I'm talking to J O B right now. I, I need to. I need to." I need him to answer. I need him to answer. It's kind of like maybe she got her hands on some communications. I don't know. That said, yo, people are about to die in Benghazi, and they're setting them up. North Africa prior to 911. Well, we usually don't talk about any type of specific actions, but uh, I, again, I don't know what you could be referencing. <laughs> but she should have been like, well, then what's that? But she didn't because it's supposed to be classified. I'm, I'm just wondering if the State Department was aware or if the military was aware or if this... Huh, was the State Department aware? Oh yeah, that's right, because Hillary was in on the chain of communications. And the military was too. CIA was aware. 
And if we aren't going to talk about that, we aren't going to talk about that, but that's a, a question I'd like to know. Going back to Iran, what is our red line regarding the Iranian nuclear weapon development program? Let's pause that right there. And we will now jump to the amazing uh, hiding in plain sight Truman National Security Council. I think it's important that we visit their views on Iran, their views on nuclear stuffs, right? I mean, it's really important that we do because that'll explain to you a lot. You know, it's so, so interesting, so interesting to talk about all of these amazing things. Let's see, where is it? Where is the Truman Project talking about Iran. Oh, did you know that the Truman Project is actually funded by a specific fund called the Plowshares Fund, which is very specific. They make foundations, any, they pay a shit ton of money. And then wait, we wonder, wait a minute, we had a plane with cash go. It's called Plowshares. Plowing through fucking taxpayer dollars to push that money through. Oh, wait. And um, guess what? The... <laughs> The now president of the plowshare funds after uh, President Trump, you know, supposedly lost, right, when the new president select came in. Um, uh, this woman, Emma Belcher, she used to, like, be part of the Mark MacArthur Foundation. Hello, Minnesota. Hello, money laundering. So all they do is promote the reduction and eventual elimination of nuclear weapons, preventing the emergence of new nuclear states and building regional peace and security. It is a 501c3 foundation, and it pools money from individuals, families, and foundations. You want to guess where these foundations come from? That's what's up. Now, here's another thing. Uh, while everyone is talking about hmm, China, 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 and the Truman, you know, Truman Foundation is all over China, right? <laughs> it's, it's all over. It's always on CCTV, right? Always on CCTV. What we fail to see is what their job is. Their job is to deal with it on. Their job is to ensure that there's the right policy and cybersecurity and pluralism and multinational actions and our position in society. You know, it's like uh, they oversaw the Ukraine crisis. Uh, you know, they, they did so many amazing things. Let's talk about the Iran deal. Oh, did Not you know? Among local did you know? Uh, because we already showed this, I think. I think it's important that we kind of revisit it again. I just showed it to you. But now that you see who and what behind whichever, maybe this will make more sense. I mean, again, they hide in plain sight. So this is a new concept for a lot of people to understand who these people are. The president's promise to work with Iran was a topic of discussion among local leaders at the Embarcadero today. Former State Assemblyman and Iraq veteran Nathan Fletcher and Congressman Scott Peters stood with other members of the Truman National Security Project. They said they support the agreement with Iran that includes the country allowing international inspectors in to look at their nuclear weapons in exchange for lifted sanctions.
Okay, so just so you know, the uh, Truman National Security Council was the one that bombarded, right? They used their fellows to bombard Congress to ensure that the Iran deal goes through. And you know what else? They believe that um, this organization is the bee's knees. I mean, it's really, really important that we have this project, you know, present because it's one of the best ones. I mean, Tori, don't you know that they're doing a lot of good protecting us? Mm-hmm. That's it. That is exactly it. That is what they're telling you. You should listen to what they're saying, though, because um, it doesn't sound like they're helping a lot of people. It actually sounds like they're guiding almost everything, even elections. What? Elections? Watch this. Tony, we now Wait. He betrayed his oath. Tony, we so this is on uh, Chinese television once again. And here are elections that, you know, the Truman National Security Council knows best. You should listen to them. They know everything. Everything. Now with more on the Afghan elections and the current security situation there is Rebecca Zimmerman. She's a fellow with the Truman National Security Project. I want to welcome you to the broadcast. They're going to be going to the polls just uh, very soon. Um, what are the aspirations of the voters, would you say? Can, can you kind of narrow it down for us? What are they looking for in a new government, do you suspect? So, well, I think this is really a historical moment for the Afghan people, and there's a lot of enthusiasm behind the elections. I think in particular right now, a lot of Afghans are looking for uh, change, change from the status quo um, that, that some people feel has disenfranchised them, but at the same time, really an improvement in, in their security, their ability to sort of predict what their everyday lives are going to look like a year from now, two years from now. You mentioned security. There's the BSA. As we know, Karzai's refused to go on board with that. The, a lot of the candidates say they will sign it. That's one issue that will uh, uh, the new president will have to deal with. A number of others, you know, uh, the kind of sticky relationship with neighbors, including Pakistan, the Taliban, of course, uh, the economy, the list goes on and on. So, so what are they facing, whoever the new leader may be? Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's enough to be facing right there. That's quite a lot. Um, it, it's really an intense balancing act that's going to begin with the, the choice of the cabinet and the extent to which this is a unity government where they're, they're going to be inclusive of uh, other uh, partisan and ethnic viewpoints. Um, and that's really going to, I think, dictate the overall tone as far as how they engage with Pakistan and Iran, how they engage with the United States, uh, what they end up doing specifically with the bilateral security agreement. Again, all the front runners have said they're going to sign the BSA. Don't anticipate that to be uh, a problem. But, uh, you know, the, the Look at them meddling in done, elections. Um, whether any of those provisions huh? end up getting, getting at modified that. at all. Those will all be really big decisions they'll be facing. Big decisions. Big decisions. But they all said that they're going to sign with us because we said so. Wait, they also have stuff to talk rush. about on, uh, you know, Chinese network again, right? It's, uh, it's always on Chinese TV. Isn't that so weird? Um, funded by the Chinese government. Here they are talking about um, the Vegas shooting. Shooting is renewing the debate on gun control in the United States. Let's bring in Sean Van Diver live from California. He's the co-director of the Truman National Security Project San Diego chapter. Um, Sean, we always seem to see you after events like these. And there's always a lot of talk, but 
Has anything really changed in the recent months, weeks since the last mass shooting in the United States? And do you think they're coming for your guns. I told you that a long time ago. And these are the people that are pushing it. And you know what's really weird? You can't find any of these fellows. You can't find any of these fellows. It's really hard to find their chapters unless they're being interviewed on Chinese television or France 24. Um, you can't find any of these fellows. And another thing is, is that a lot of these fellows are involved in some weird, totally random, random, random union called SAG. I thought that was for actors. Like, that's so bizarre. So it's like, these are fellows and people from other organizations like Foreign Council, the Foreign, uh, the, the Council of Foreign Relations, all these clowns belong to those organizations and then come to those. They vet the crap out of them, the crap out of them. And, uh, you know, they're hidden in plain sight because then you just assume, oh, they're probably Truman fellows from the Tr Harry Truman fund, which goes with Albright scholars. No, they're not. See, that's how you hide in plain sight. Same name, similar name, different spelling, different organization. You fly under the radar because your money's only under a million dollars, but yet you have all these heavy hitters as your board of directors. I mean, Hunter Biden demanded a shit ton of money from other companies. You think he didn't get paid for this one? Oh, oh wait. And the Denver Post, I kid you not, in 2019, when Hunter Biden became CEO of the Truman National Security Project, that's, they said that that crackhead was presidential material. I think the laws would change if the shooters were foreign born. No, you, Elaine, thanks for having me back on. And the reality is, is that the, uh, the GOP and the NRA need to end their love affair. Uh, congressmen got shot at and nothing changed. The reality is that that these folks are, pur are purchasing their guns legally, which means that maybe we need to change the laws on how we purchase guns, right? And, you know, we've, we've talked at length about, the, about my proposal to have a five-year cycle of training, background checks, and mental health screening. Because if a pilot can be screened for mental health, then a gun owner can be screened for mental health. Uh, we've talked about uh, magazine size. This shooter, uh, Stephen Paddock, he fired uh, continuously. And if he fired continuously 30 rounds and had to reload, it took him like uh, 20 seconds to reload each time. Imagine if there were only 10 rounds in there. Imagine if there were only five rounds in there. Many, many lives would have been saved. Now, I think if we do all that and tie it to a national concealed carry permit, I think we've, we've improved gun laws in our country and improved access for the right people. We have smart, principled gun laws. You know, um that all sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And there's also yeah. been uh, talk by Democrats in the past of a national gun registry um, where put you on a list. So that way they know what kind of actor they need to set you up for shit. So let's move it along. Let's 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 enjoy some more of these characters. There's more characters because the thing is, these people hide in plain sight. You don't see them. They're not on a list. How are they not on a list? That's so weird. So, so weird. You want to hear um, other things that they talk about? Wait, let's see. Which one? Hmm. Let's talk about their cybersecurity panel. If this is interesting because it's important that people know who their senators are and what they say. Now, this one is from 2013, but I need you to see 
the symbols and the companies that are surrounding these nice gentlemen and how the Truman National Security Council is everywhere. If we ever slow down or have to take a step backwards because of a lack of funding, then it just gives the bad guys uh, more of an opportunity to encroach on our space and do things that um, or we're not able to do the defensive measures that we need to do to keep them from uh, uh, carrying out um, maybe minor or obviously potentially major attacks. So the funding part of it is key in cybersecurity right now. And I think from the tech community perspective, it's one of opportunity cost. There are a lot of challenges we could be tackling right now and we need DC to tackle, uh, such as Truman. immigration reform. Um, you know, from the tech perspective, that's essential to ensure that we have the talent necessary to really um, continue to innovate. And so we have to get these things done. We have to modernize or continue to modernize our education system. And if we're squabbling over uh, relatively insignificant or trying to relitigate old legislative battles. We're not getting to these really, really tough challenges. Security is mainly a people problem. I mean, even if you have the world's best technology. I know, people are such a problem. We need to get rid of them, right? We need to be able to have a good amount of number of people that we can control because we care about you. Yeah, okay, so it's fake. We're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Pretty amazing. We know West, we know best. Oops. <laughs> Oops. So here we go. Let's look at some more of these clowns and what they have to educate us on. This video is again on Chinese television. And we have Andrew Barin on RIMPAC. Andrew Barin is the defense counsel advisor at the Truman National Security Project and attorney at Steptoe and Johnson and joins CCTV with more RIMPAC. What's that? Well, that's another term. And another clown you need to know. Here you go. Uh, for more on RIMPAC and what it could mean in the long term for participating countries and the Asia-Pacific region, we're joined by Andrew Boreen. He's a defense counsel advisor at the Truman National Security Project and attorney at Steptoe and Johnson. That's here in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, the United States has been talking to China. It's got to be more transparent about its military. Well, here it is with some of its ship. What does this do in terms of transparency and, and kind of building trust between these two countries, would you say? I think it, it goes a long way. Uh, this is the first time ever China has participated in the RIMPAC exercises. Uh, and certainly all of the participants in this exercise uh, from 22 nations are aware that there are future humanitarian disasters where they'll need to work together. Uh, and at those times, it'll be very important that all of those forces uh, understand each other's uh, tactics, techniques, procedures, uh, ways of conducting operations uh, in order to prevent confusion that could lead to conflict. Uh, so I, I think it's actually very positive uh, that China is participating this year, uh, especially at a time when uh, they face some maritime tensions with Japan and the Philippines, uh, and also some tensions with the United States uh, over uh, espionage claims uh, one way or the other. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you, the U.S. looks at it one way on. Oh, no, China's doing some good stuff. Had nothing to do in 2014 with Hunter Biden. Absolutely nothing. Nothing to see here. But I'm just showing you some of these people that you've never heard of. You know, it's it's important that people know these more people. More into you know, uh, um, they even have military. They have everything. They talk about everything. You want to see something more fun? Hmm. Well, Dan Mish, 
the founder and co-director of the Veterans Advanced Energy Project, joined the Environmental Entrepreneurs for a webinar on May 13, 2020, titled Oil, Clean Energy, and National Security, to talk about the impact that COVID is having on clean energy, in, uh, on clean energy industry, employment, and how to support the veteran community. E2 is a 2019-2020 sponsor of the Veterans Advance Project, which is housed within the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center. And guess what? These guys are also part of, that's right, you guessed it. Yes, the Truman National Security Council. Let's just look at a couple of these faces, right? No need to delve too hard into it. Oh, look at all these retired generals. Interesting. Um, so next and last, before we head into questioning, uh, we have our final speaker, Dan Mish. Uh, he is senior is a senior manager in Wind Asset Management at Venergy. He previously served as a federal project director for the U.S. Department of Energy at Argonne National Laboratory and as a uh, nuclear engineer um, in. Argon Labs, where my friend sold part of their patent for um, a device. Oh, oh, it. I'm just, I'm not, not yet. In the U.S. Navy. In 2016, he founded the Veterans Advanced Energy Summit to uh, educate military veterans on global energy security challenges. Uh, Dan is a 2016 Take Point Fellow with the Atlantic Council, a class of 2020 emerging leader with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and a member of the Truman National Security Project. Okay. Uh, in 2017. That's all we needed to see right there and here right there. So let's move on to our next clown. These are people you've never even heard of. Hmm? That's how they operate. But you know, if you look hard enough, you'll be able to um, understand a lot more of what's really going on, of what they're really doing. So this is from 2021, actually two days ago. I want you to um, listen to what these freaky people are saying. It's quite interesting. Take a listen to this. Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. We're going to give just a few minutes here for everyone to join in who has been waiting before we start our program. Challenges like technology and artificial intelligence and its applications. So today I have the pleasure of introducing our moderator um, for today's event, Jennifer Atala. Jennifer is the founder of Anara Strategies, LLC, an impact strategy consultancy focused on building tech innovation and entrepreneurship ecosystems globally. She is also our Truman National Security Project, North Carolina chapter director, a Middle East foreign policy. Okay, well, we found out they have it in North Carolina too. So those of you in North Carolina, get cracking, figure it out. You can always make a fake email and you can always apply so that you can get their emails and see what they're doing. I mean, why not? See, that's, a, that's the weird thing. You can't even find the chapters unless they vet you and you find out. So you have to scout the internet for trunk. Truman National Security Council. Trunk.
not so hiding now. Policy analyst and is currently authoring her first book. Without further ado, uh, we'll hand it over to you, Jennifer, to introduce our panelists. Go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, Rakia. Uh, I am so excited about this panel and I cannot take credit for it at all. I, I just happen to have an awesome rock star AI specialist in my North Carolina chapter, and that is Igor Yavlikov. Igor is the, a pioneer in voice recognition technology. Remember that name, Igor Yavlikov. Oh, it totally sounds, yep. He named Alexa, as you know her today, um, and his early company was one of the first acquisitions by Amazon for that technology, and he's currently the founder and CEO of Prion, and he is the one who we have to thank for pulling together this awesome uh, group of panelists. Uh, we also are joined by Michael Kanan, who is, uh, who's had a career in the U.S. Air Force um, and is currently leading a partnership with MIT Artificial Intelligence, and he is the author of the book T-Minus AI. Um, and finally, we are joined by um, AI leader Ashish Bansal, who has expertise in big tech enterprise applications, particularly in the banking and social media industries. I want you to listen to who these people are. The guy that named Alexa, the people that pioneered the shit that's messing up everything in our nation. I'm trying to guide you to see the hidden government. I'm trying again while everyone is sitting there telling you about the foreign, the Council of Foreign Relations and the Atlantic Council. If you know their name, it's not a big deal. You get it? It's not a big deal if you know their name. If you know their name, it's not a big deal. These people run everything. And he's the author of Advanced NLP, Natural Language Processing with TensorFlow. Um, we're really excited about this particular group of panelists um, because they really bring the cross-section of application and leadership on um, this topic, um, with Michael having worked in academia and military with the sheesh having come from industry and big tech applications in social media. Um, and then with Igor sort of spanning the gamut, having worked in big tech, but then um, as an entrepreneur as well to develop AI at a quote unquote brisker uh, pace. And so he has intersected with each of their worlds. And so I really couldn't think of a, a better group of people to be here today to talk about um, AI and national security broadly and what that means, um, even down to the individual level. So I want to start with um, our promise to you, which is that we do not want to just talk about AI and national security in the same way that it is always talked about. Um, there are some big issues that we definitely want to address from the national security, um, sort of more mainstream national security perspective, such as China and geopolitics and jobs and things like that. And we will talk about those, but we really want to go beyond that and take it from the sort of um, the wonky discussion that we could easily have <laughs> also down to the intersection with education, um, STEM, with ethics and parenting, I mean, even down to that level of what is happening now, what do we already have in our worlds, how are we benefiting from AI, and what agency do we have to move this technology forward? Parenting, did you hear that too? Okay, I'm just, so what agency do they have to move this forward? 
listen. Listen to this. You don't have to listen to her. First of all, to listen to this. I'm Jenna Benihuda. I'm the CEO and president of Truman Center for National Policy and Truman National Security Project. We are delighted to have you here this evening. We are recorded, uh, which means we're on the record here and hone it. And what do I mean when I say that? When we talk about Unite, we talk about our competitive membership process. That is the application process that we hope you will all embark upon this evening. We then, through this competitive member-led selection process, bring in a class every year of about 100 to 150 people. Once we have this group together, we bring you through an orientation process that is typically over three to four days, which we're adapting for Zoom life. During that period of time, you get to meet your community, your people. Your first home base is your chapter. You'll meet some of those chapter directors this evening. And you'll also select as you come in a cohort. That is another identity, another entry point into the community. Your cohort. Uh, you mean, do you know what a cohort is? It is a group of people that you are experimenting on. That That is actually how it's defined. So you will select to be a political partner. You're listening to the president and CEO, right, of the Truman National Security Council. Take a listen. Careful, careful. You will select whether you want to be part of the defense council or a security fellow. In the breakout rooms, you'll have the opportunity to ask more questions about what differentiates that those groups. But I want you to think about when you make that choice, that is a lens through which you can engage with the community. But it's not the only lens. We have, and this gets to the build part of Unite Build Lead, because we bring you in, we connect you to each other, we train you up. We've got a moderator training happening, I think, next week. We've got speech writing and op-ed trainings happening all throughout the spring. So we unite, we train, we connect people, and then we build. This, I think, is what really distinguishes Truman from any other organization in the entire country. When we bring people into the Truman community, we don't just ask you to join us. We ask you to show up and we ask you to engage. And to do that, headquarters, my team in DC, provide a wide variety of tools through which you can build initiatives to launch movements, advocacy campaigns, and make policy real. One example of that, and there are many, uh, is the State Department Task Force that we're launching in a few weeks. That is a task force that has been run totally by Truman members. Our co-chairs are Senator Chris Murphy and um, you're just listening to this. So Jake Sullivan as well. Uh, Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy. Oh, listen to her. They have a State Department division and their project is launching. Listen carefully. In a few weeks. That is a task force that has been run totally by Truman members. Our co-chairs are Senator Chris Murphy and Congressman Joaquin Castro from Texas and retired U.S. Ambassador Gina. Castro from Texas. Wait a minute. Castro was running for president, wasn't he? <laughs> okay. So those are the people that are deploying the State Department task force. Okay. Just listen. Abercrombie Wynn Stanley. Together with our co-chairs, over 70 people 
and 40 Truman authors are providing recommendations to now confirm Secretary of State Tony Blinken about how to repair the State Department through a lens of equity and inclusivity. And it's written from the perspective of the mid-career experience of Truman members. That is one example of the build aspect of the work that we do here at Truman. Truman members coming together in service of elevating smart and bold national security ideas. Now, while everybody tells you about skull and bones, right? They do. I just want you to know that the majority of these fuckers are from Yale too. So they were closed, but no cigar, you know, and as I've said many, many times before, if you want to know the truth about the swamp, you need to speak to someone that's been waiting in that bitch for 20 years. And that someone's me. But, you know, what do I know? <laughs> I know nothing. I just, you know, I know absolutely nothing. And to sort of reclaim, um, again, our own agency as we interact with this technology on a daily basis. Uh, and so with that, um, I'd like to start with that bigger picture question. There really isn't a better time than now to be talking about this. Um, earlier this month, we had an over 700 page report uh, published by the National Security Commission on artificial intelligence. Um, I have it up right now. It's actually, if you include the title page, 756 pages. Uh, that is a lot. And, and so we have a lot of urgency here now within the US government to talk about how AI will impact our economy, national security, and welfare. Um, and so, you know, I want to actually begin with a quote from that report um, and then turn it to our panelists. Uh, at the very beginning, this report states that America is not prepared to defend or compete in the AI era. This is the tough reality we must face, and it is. They can't because they don't have the quantum. And unfortunately, they're not going to. I want you to now listen to this part of what the president had to say, the president of the Truman National Security Council. And so Truman, which has long been kind of at the seams of domestic policy and foreign policy, is now, I think, you know, we've been hit to this for a long time. And now we hear that same framing from our president and from our senior leaders and the national security community, many of whom are Truman members. So I think no accident there. But we're Did you hear that? Everyone in our national security committee is a Truman member and our president is speaking about it. No shit. His son was the CEO of the Truman National Security Project. I'm going to show you that too, because he's been buffed out, right? I'm going to show you that too, but they don't have anything. They got nothing. Alice got nothing on me. <laughs> I'll tell you that, but man, listen. We're talking about national security starting at home. We're reconciling what it means to live in this post-post 9-11 era and what it means to be post-post 9-11 era, two posts. I want you to just sit on that one for a sec. Be at a place where we're about to celebrate, to commemorate really, to honor the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, which is a where we're going to honor the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attack. 
we're going to honor the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. I, I'm going to repeat this. We are going to honor the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Hold on. Let me just rewind that so you can hear the president of this Truman National Security Council say it again. Of the 9-11 attacks, which is a right really to honor the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, which is a foundational kind of fundamental part of Truman in our history because Truman was founded in the aftermath of 9-11. <laughs> Actually, let me let me let me get something truly straight here. There was a Truman National Security Council that was by another name. And they then changed it because they had a height. We're in an era that has been digitized. We can't sit there and have a website and communicate with people online and be out there if they see us. So we're going to call it the Truman National Security Project. Because then when we call them fellows, people will just assume it's the Harry Truman and Albright, all, you know, the Albright fellows. And no one will pay attention. It's genius. What do you think, Tori? Uh, well, hiding in plain sight is always the way you do it. Yep, this is why we changed the name from ISIS to ISIL, because we can't show that they're, yeah, you know, stuff like that. Your enemies, our nation's enemies, have been sitting and hiding in plain sight with their beautiful smiles, right, collecting all the nice talent. While everyone's distracted with these, um, organizations, Atlantic Council, Bilderberg meetings, Ooh. Council on Foreign Relations, Skull and Bones, the core of it, right? The super exclusive core of it sits elsewhere. The people that are actually making, they have, damn, in that foundation, they're a 501, they have all these, uh, you know, hmm, and like I said, it's the plowshares fund that funds them. Well, that's the one that initiated it. Hence why one of their first biggest movements was pushing for the Iran nuclear deal. Huh? So weird. So weird. And, you know, it was really weird when I first, um, you know, saw their logo on a piece of paper. We're talking a long time ago. And I turned around to people, very powerful people disgusting, evil people. And I said, why is NYU involved? Because it looked like the NYU logo, you know. My mom went to college there. So I just like, mm, you know. And <laughs> yeah, my mom is a graduate. She went to graduate school there for economics. So I, I was like, well, this is the NYU logo. No, 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 it's not. And I'm like, but, ah, oh, okay. Well, yeah, this is just an exclusive, you know, think tank thing. Think tank thing. I'm like, okay, a purple NYU logo as their logo. I see. You know, because I'm very good at logos. You show me logos, I can tell you the company. I actually had a board game that was a logo game, and that's one thing I remember. Small, you know, picture language is very easy for me. You know, like hieroglyphics, Aramaic, Aramaic, not so, well, yeah, because you see Hebrew is more modernized Hebrew. It's very difficult for me. Uh, but um, 
you know, while everyone's sitting there stroking you and you have all this information, do you know how hard it is to find the names of these freaking fellows? There's no list. No list. No list. So the generation of most Truman members is that post 9-11 generation of people who were called to service. But we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world that has been changed by rapidly advancing technology that has been shaped by almost two decades of conflict. And so Truman is grappling with the issues of protracted militarism, with what it means that the middle class has largely been left behind, uh, despite our might and our, our presence overseas. But we also in the Truman community are comprised of activists and of organizers. So we span a wide breadth of experience of people who engage in national security. And part of our strength lies in that local expression of what national security might mean in a Milwaukee or a Provo. Um, and so if you're wondering, am I a national security person? Do I belong here? The answer, I think, is more than you probably realize. San Diego's and I hope this evening will give you the opportunity to get a better sense of what we mean when we talk about national security. Because while we care a whole lot about our national defense and what that looks like and the balance of power, great power competition, and so many of these classic interpretations of national security, we are also really thinking about the holistic, human-centered consideration of how we define that for our how do they define it? Yeah. How do they define that holistic center? How do they? Do you know that before it became the Truman National Security Council, the person that had this think tank was called Mr. Christian? I kid you not. Um, and I want you to listen to a few people. So Jake Sullivan, like I told you, was, um, was, uh, uh, you know, a board member on their screens. I want you to listen to Pete Buttigieg and Jake Sullivan. Take a listen. And there's really nobody finer to talk about Truman, its history and its impact than John Driscoll, my partner in crime and our board chair for the Truman Project and longtime, I think, chief cheerleader um, of Truman. So John, without further ado, I'll turn it over to your most capable hands. I am just so psyched that we have so many supporters. You know, one of the things that the team at Truman uh, has heard more than once is, you know, initially we had a hard time filling up a lunch table. I mean, <laughs> I've been around long enough that when we initially were looking for Truman fellows, we literally uh, ha had to recruit people like Pete Buttigieg and Jake Sullivan. We had to recruit people like Pete Buttigieg and Jake Sullivan. I do want to adjust something that was put in the chat. Is Truman a partisan organization? We are a 501c4. And what that means under IRS tax code is that we can engage in advocacy efforts and in taking political positions. So what does that look like? Well, it means that on occasion, we take a position on a particular piece of legislation. For example, in 2020, we supported the SHAPE Act. That is an effort to stop sexual harassment at the State Department. We did that under the Truman National Security Project banner. We also have Truman Center for National Policy, which is a 501c3 um, educational and research think tank. Our members participate 
really heavily in a lot of the work of Truman Center for National Policy. But the story is that Truman started by, with an idea toward creating a bench for national security Democrats, because there was not a credible bench of Democrats in this field to be found. The Truman of today is an inclusive community. So you will not only find yourself surrounded by Democrats, there are people of many parties who are part of this community. But in this moment, we care about these principles as we long have, and we find sometimes that there are limitations to the ways in which that those principles and policies are embraced by both parties. Oh, mm -hmm. And so we welcome you here, regardless of party affiliation, we focus on our values and on the policies that support those values and advance those values. See, they don't have to hide anymore. They don't. See, they were hiding in plain sight. Take a look at this video now have a voice in an organization that pushes policies affecting national security and veterans affairs. The Truman National Security Project launched its San Diego chapter at a ceremony today aboard the USS Midway, and Fox 5's Misha DeBono was there. This is a community that is about embracing and shaping the future, not fearing it. With the USS Midway as a backdrop, San Diego welcomes the newest chapter of the Truman Project to the community. The Truman community nationwide unites next generation and new generation of veterans, of policy leaders, and of political leaders to develop and to advance solutions to the global challenges Americans now face. Part think tank, part action tank. They're based out of our nation's capital, but draw on communities throughout the country to come up with ideas and push policy that benefits our national security, nurtures the economic impact of the military on a community, and helps our veterans. Sean Van Diver is the co-director of the new San Diego chapter. San Diego is national security. You know, we've, we've for so long identified it as a sleepy beach town, but we're an international city. We've got a border. We can see Mexico from right here. It's right there. Andy says it's a perfect fit given our large military presence and by extension, the business community that supports it. We've got the military here. We've got cyber and innovation as a major business here. Uh, defense is 22% is of our GDP here in San Diego. That's insane. We know it's important that San Diego have a national voice. And the Truman Project is one of the, one of the premier organizations as it relates to national security and veterans issues. Supported by City Council members Todd Gloria and David Alvarez, as well as Congressman Scott Peters and former Assemblyman Nathan Fletcher is on the board. Didn't some of those council members get arrested? I'm just thinking they're all Ed Buck friends. Wait a minute. There's more. There's more. You want to hear people that are attached to this? How about Podesta? Oh, wait, it gets better. He says while the economic impact of our military is substantial here in San Diego, it's also part of our culture. There are more Iraqi and Afghan combat veterans who are coming into the community in San Diego than anywhere else. And so as we deal with issues of national security, as we deal with issues of the economic impact, the cultural impact, having a great heart and compassion for those returning veterans is, is great, too. Misha DeBono, Fox 5 News. Very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Doug Wilson, thank you very, very much for your for your kindness, for your friendship, and for your your counsel through these years. It is a great honor to be uh, with with all of you. So many people who have done so very much for the country that we love. Uh, for more than a decade, the Truman National Security Project 
has been at the forefront of nurturing a new generation of leaders in foreign policy and national security. From military bases in San Diego to federal agencies in Washington, you are not only advocating for a strong, smart, principled approach to international affairs, you're taking action and you're doing it every day. Through Operation Free, you are mobilizing a coalition of veterans, activists, and experts who know our reliance on fossil fuels threatens the very security of our country. And through no exceptions, you're working to make sure that our military recruits the most talented Americans, regardless of gender. And through the Frontline Civilians Initiative, you are supporting the diplomats, the journalists, the NGO workers, the development professionals who are not in uniform, but who nonetheless put their lives on the line to alleviate human suffering around the world every day. Thanks to all of you, the Truman Project has emerged as a valuable source of ideas on some of the toughest challenges facing our nation today. And we need those bold ideas now more than ever. America's role in the world is to advance the cause of a rising global middle class, free from oppression, free from want, free from fear. But after 12 years on battlefields of Iraq, and Afghanistan, after a global financial crisis and a long recession that our people are still struggling to fully recover from. It's understandable, isn't it, that many Americans would like to disengage from the world around us. That's understandable, but it is not responsible. Because our nation's security and our children's prosperity demand that we actually be more engaged with the world around us and not less. We do this primarily by making our nation more prosperous and secure here at home. We do this by exercising our economic, diplomatic, military, and healing power around the world in ways that are consistent with our most deeply held moral principles. In essence, we must create a more far-sighted and more proactive foreign policy based on engagement and collaboration rather than going it alone. And we must construct a new framework for our national security strategy focused on the reduction of threats. Today's challenges defy easy solutions. We may have the most sophisticated military in the world, but we do not have a silver bullet. So this morning, I want to share a vision with you of a more agile, innovative and forward-thinking approach, one that will enable us to master the challenges of our time rather than falling victim to them. And my purpose in our short time today is, is not to offer soundbite solutions to a laundry list of uh, crises around the world. Uh, my purpose here today instead is to lay out a long-term framework. Long-term framework. That's what they've been doing for a while, guys. A while. It's so interesting how all of these losers can hide in plain sight and nobody saw them. Nobody. No one? Not one person? Wait, we've got more. Let's watch this clip. And for more on the latest. On Chinese TV, of course. Because, <laughs> see, you don't even know their name. You have to ask someone that knows them to know their names. Pretty interesting. U.S. airstrikes. We turn to Mark Levine. He's a fellow with the Truman National Security Project. 
here in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Let's start with this latest group that uh, Jim mentioned in his piece, the Har al-Sham rebel group. Um, do you think that it was a mistake by coalition forces to, to strike this group? It's not on the list of designated terror groups. Um, is this a group that's a threat or what happened here? I hope it wasn't a mistake. There's always that possibility. But we have to remember that in Syria, there's a, it's a very fluid situation with a large number of different groups. And it's kind of hard to keep tabs on all of them. You have the Assad government supported by Iran and the Shia uh, terrorist groups like Hezbollah, which is one faction. You have ISIS, which we've heard so much about. And you have al-Nusra, which is an al-Qaeda-backed faction. They all hate each other and uh, they kill each other, along with the people we support, the Free Syrian Army. All four groups are fighting. And then there's a question of whose allegiance is who. the Khorasan group. You heard her mention that. They're not quite al-Qaeda, but they're somewhat affiliated with al-Qaeda. We think they may do tax against the United States. Now we come to Arar al-Sham. They're with the Islamic Front. This is an Islamist group in the sense that they want to impose an Islamic state. They're not with ISIS. They're, whether they're with al-Qaeda or not, it's an open question. Their leader has contacts with al-Qaeda. They fought alongside al-Qaeda. And we may have been worried that an arms cache near the Turkish border might find its way to al-Qaeda if Arar al-Sham was there. It's very complex. The only people that we actively support are the Free Syrian Army and the Kurdish fighters, both of which support basically a secular, democratic Syria and Iraq. Unfortunately, they may be the weakest parties right now. What are the political implications of kind of striking all these different groups? Because with this most recent group, Arar al-Sham, um, you know, it could appear to some that the coalition is siding with the Assad government. Um, the goal, I thought, or what many people think, is to target ISIS, ISIL. So what happens when you start hitting all these other groups? Well, I, I hope we make it clear that whether it is ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Assad, all three are inimical to American values. All three are brutal, murderous groups, that all of which have massacred thousands of innocent people. In fact, the Assad government's probably the most lethal. They've massacred hundreds of thousands of innocent people. The only good guys we know are the Free Syrian Army and the Kurds. And sometimes in the tactical front of a four-way civil war, which arguably is five or six-way, we find even our allies fighting alongside some of our enemies. That's what makes it incredibly complex. As for the people's allegiances, seven million Syrian refugees, one-third of the country has already left or is internally displaced. I think most of the ordinary people are running for their lives and uh, are not too much caring for any of the sides right now. You know, a few months ago, before this all started, uh, you know, the Assad government said, we don't want anyone coming into our yeah. airspace or into our country without- Yeah, they did. Um, are you guys paying attention? Do you see how far and wide these clowns are? Oh man, wait, it gets better. Let me share something with you. Something a lot of people don't want to see. Give me a second. Oh, where is it? Okay, I have to do that. There we go. All right, there we go. We're sharing that now, right? Totally. Oh, look at that. Is that Hunter Biden? Shit. Is that Jake Sullivan? Oh, damn. These are all people, <laughs> these are all people that, um, Steve Israel. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's see. So this guy's still there. That guy's still there. Oh, look, vice chairman. Well, we actually have him as CEO too. At some point there's Driscoll, the guy that dropped Pete Buttigieg, 
is his name. <laughs> look at these. Oh, look at them. Look at this clown. Oh, look at that. Dang. <sighs> you know, I say it a lot. You know, I'm one of the most impatient people. Impatient people. Very impatient. And I don't like to show what I know only because I I get a lot of flack. You know, we can't trust you. You work for Brennan. Uh, in fact, I'm probably the one that knows a lot more than any of you on that because of that. I'm just saying. Here's where we're going to laugh a little bit at the Denver Post. I want to show you their nice little article promoting Hunter Biden, the crackhead, to be a fabulous presidential candidate. Oh, come on. Seriously? Okay. Close that. Close that. All right. Oh, you deeper. You know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to archive this. Let's go back. Oh, wait a minute. Is it gone? Where's my Denver Post article on Hunter Biden? Did they remove? Good thing I saved it and printed it. Hmm. That's odd, isn't it? Hmm. I'm really upset right now because I can't pull it from my drive. <laughs> the Denver Post actually gloated, right, on the fact that he's going, he's, you know, pretty much presidential material. Now, in February of 2020, as Joe Biden's presidential campaign was tanking, uh, stories were coming out. In 2011, two years into his father's term as vice president, Hunter Biden was appointed by the Truman National Security Project, a left-leaning foreign policy network, which, by the way, is a 501c3, 501c4, also formerly known as the, um, what is it called, the Truman Institute, uh, the, the Truman National Security Institute. Yeah, that's the way it was. Uh, uh, it was the TNSP. Um, where Josh Block it used to be part of it, uh, Center for American Progress, um, you know, because they were breaking the tradition with the Clinton wing, Democratic support for Israel. So they kind of split because they were going into the more fast forward. We've got Podesta involved in this. We've got everybody and their mother that you know is a bad actor, all part of it. In 2014, the Truman Project, because like she told you, they have two separate ones, uh, emailed all of their associates and all of their fellows to flood all media outlets with support for the Obama administration nuclear deal with Iran, saying it was the only way it would go forward. I mean, they had a shit ton of money coming in from plowshares, right, uh, which is the only one that funds for nuclear energy. Oh, it gets more. Uh, so... It's quite important that you understand that the Truman Project also was the one that pushed in 2014, uh, Greg Gutfield and Eric Boiling, um, you know, they wrote a letter to Fox. They all signed it. Veterans did. They had everybody and their mother who's a loser, right, sign a letter saying, oh, they made like a, um, 
some off-color jokes about some Arab Emirates Air Force pilot. So, you know, they should dismiss them. And it's like, wait a minute, who are they? And why are the ones, why are they the ones that are calling the shots? How are they different? That's because they're everywhere. Daniel, um, Danielle Pletka, vice president for foreign and defense policy studies at the center-right American Enterprise Institute questioned the effectiveness of dozens of wonks who went into administrative positions in the Obama administration. She pointed out the Syrian civil war, deterioration of law and order in North Africa, and legally questionable drone killings. Pletka believed that the national security progressive had been more adept in finding jobs for themselves than governing, stating, if your ambition is to feed the public trough, then I think there are organizations that have done very well under President Obama. So bringing this Truman National Security Project Institute, Project Council, right? They go by many names into focus. We circle back to the drone shootings. Let's go back to Michelle, who... Hmm. Annihilated. Annihilated. Brennan. Annihilated him. Let's go back to that conversation. Because yeah. I think the only way we can move forward is revisiting this. This is something we need to bring to our representatives. We want to circle the fuck back to the drone strikes, please. And we want now that General Flynn is under no obligation. It's been what, seven years to speak, to speak. Why didn't you speak before? I tried to. That's why they fired me. Thank you for your service, sir. You're awesome. This, according to our predictive analytics, is the way we get stuff done. Uh, let me find the other clip because this is kind of robotic. Give me a second. Um, here we go. Michelle Thank you, Bachman. Mr. Chair, and welcome, Mr. Brennan. Michelle Bachman leaked classified info during question for John Brennan, CIA director. Let's listen to it again. I want you to pay attention to General Flynn's face, who is very pissed. Remember, the drone strikes happened right before Benghazi happened. And remember, I told you that there was a boat that took... I mean, we went through Greece. I'm just saying. The committee, thank all of you for being here. I joined Mr. Lobiando. It is really an honor to be able to meet with the intelligence community all over the world. We thank them for their work. My questions are regarding Iran and obtaining the nuclear weapon. I'd like to ask some questions about that. But before I do that, I'd like to ask a question of Director Brennan. When the White House conducted their armed drone strikes in North Africa, particularly in eastern Libya, marked the attack on our mission in Benghazi on 911 last year, did the White House notify the State Department of the armed drone strikes before they were made? Uh, armed drone strikes in Libya? Um, unknown of, of such, and I would defer to the White House to uh, address your question. Were there any armed drone strikes in Northern Africa that were made by the White House? White House doesn't have uh, a drone capability, responsibility, whatever. So, I, I, Did they have any directives toward having armed drone strikes in North Africa? Again, I don't know what it is specifically referring to, but uh, again, I would defer to the White House on whatever happened at that time. 
Well, I speak to the capability. The, the UAVs that were over flying over uh, Libya were military and were unarmed. And so were there any armed drone strikes that were made in North Africa prior to 911? In Libya? I'm asking in North Africa. I'm asking the. I'm asking Director Brennan. Were there any armed drone strikes that were made by the United States in North Africa prior to 911? Well, we usually don't talk about any type of specific actions, but uh, I, again, I don't know what you could be referencing. I'm. I'm just wondering if the State Department was aware, or if the military was aware, or if the CIA was aware. And if we aren't going to talk about that, we aren't going to talk about that. But that's a, a question I'd like to know. Going back to Iran. What is our red line regarding the Iranian nuclear weapon development program? And I would ask Director Brennan, what is our what is our red line? Uh, that clearly is a. I, she keeps saying, "Stop talking, people." I want Brennan to answer the question. And Clapper is supposedly the DNI, yet he's leading it all. Look at Mueller; he's like, "Yep, I'm staying out of this shit." Look at their faces. A policy question, that's one of the things that the intelligence community is trying to make sure that policymakers are fully informed about developments inside of Iran and their uh, nuclear-related uh, pursuits. But regarding the, the nuclear weapon program and our intelligence uh, capability, again, we have a wonderful intelligence community, but we weren't aware of the, of the bombing in 1993 at the World Trade Center Tower. We weren't aware before 911 occurred in 2001. We weren't aware of the Arab Spring developments and we weren't aware of the attack on the mission in Benghazi. Damn, she's calling out all his little pet projects. Benghazi, how do we have confidence that we will know when Iran has amassed the capability of developing a nuclear weapon? I asked that because the president said last month that it would take approximately a year to develop a nuclear weapon once they had made that decision. Last week, we know that the current negotiations have gone without any breakthrough or any development. And so I'm very concerned about our intelligence capability of knowing with a high degree of certainty when Iran has either made the decision to develop nuclear weapons or has obtained nuclear weapons. I think this subject and I'm much, much better talked about in closed session. I, I would look forward to that, and I would appreciate that. Could you comment on what is happening with, uh, we talk a lot about uranium development with Iran's nuclear program, but Iran is also building a heavy water reactor capable of producing plutonium. What's the status of Iran's heavy water reactor? So Clapper and Brennan look at each other. I've seen them do this many, many times. Uh, what do we say? Mueller's in the corner saying, damn, I didn't see that coming. Are we not looking at their communications? Flynn, look at the smirk on his face. He's like, bitches. See, if I was General Flynn, I would file a key tam and say, I'm tired of this. This is what they did. They've been doing this. And the Biden administration knew about it because the fucker gave the order for the UAV. Obviously, it was Barack Hussein Obama who was being advised before he became CIA director by Brennan, right? And Biden knew. 
So this is where he says, well, you know, I'm looking at the stuff in Syria and they're like attacking our people and he's doing all these things. It's just, I have to, I have to say something because this is what they do. They're the ones using the drones. They're doing it. They're doing, oh my gosh, I would so do that. And what are they going to do? You're going to the brig, sir, for breaching national security. Well, I'm not breaching anything. I'm just talking about the stuff that was already on TV. I think that there needs to be an investigation and this administration should be removed because of crimes he committed against humanity back then. I would totally do that. I want you guys to just see uh, Clapper and Brendan are laughing. Like, what, what the heck do we say? She's She's got us in a box. She's asking, and look at General Flynn. He's just like... <laughs> And Mueller's like, um, yeah, we'll fix her. I'm already thinking about it. I'm just, I'm just paying attention. Well, again, this would be a closed session. I, think. I look forward to it. Man, I'm just saying, when you realize who the puppet masters are, and they're really crazy looking people, you want to see who their president is? She looks nuts. She looks nuts. And obviously she's a prop. Right. She is a total prop, but it's important you see her. Hold on. Hmm. Let me just find one so you can see her face. They have a website. Task force report release. There we go. Good evening. That's the one that we were listening to. Um, you should see her crazy face. I Were we listening to that one or were we listening to their little Zoom call one that wasn't um, put out? Let me just check. Let me check. Let me check. Before I, I play it, let me check. Scrolling, scrolling, super scrolling. Come on. Scroll, scroll. Man, I've got so much. I need to scroll. Yesterday, by the way, while I'm scrolling, I got a little bit evil. Yeah, no. So I was showing you a more insider. I was playing the the video of a more insider one. So it wasn't um, the one you're going to see now. Uh, this one is on YouTube. That's her face. She's like the president of all of it, right? She's, she's it. She's the CEO of it. Let's see. Who's that? Wait, we recognize this tool, don't we? Hmm? Don't we? Come on. State Department. Any State Department people creeping up? Let's listen to what Senator Chris Murphy has to say about this amazing organization. Look at her. Oh, look, Castro. We should listen to them before we go today. We should totally, and this ambassador, Gina, we should listen to her too. This is super important, super important. Now, why am I showing you this? Well, I'm hoping that all the people that are creeping in the Telegram channel, right, everyone watching can actually do their job that they claim to be doing and start digging and start pushing forward. I'll tell you what, if you read my article before last, I think it was suspect number 60. At the bottom of the article, I told you that I am, um, I have found evidence that the pictures that the FBI is putting on for the suspects of the Capitol are being altered. 
I'm finding that a lot of people that are being rolled up on aren't the actual people that were at the Capitol, that they were actors or they were mimickers, I would say. With predictive analytics, using your data, kind of maybe like your parlor chats, your Facebook chats, your WhatsApp app, you know, all those things, they can predict what you're going to do and where you're going to go. So I want you guys to understand just how that's a big accusation, allegation, but I'm on the verge of that because four different people have been identified as suspects at the Capitol riot. The actress got away with it where they put some people in Pennsylvania in jail. And here's the weird thing. First, they say it's for attacking an officer but they don't have them attacking an officer. Next, they say it's because they went through the back. The reporting is all sketchy and they're rolling people up on anonymous tips. So I, you know, again, again, take what you see about the Capitol with a grain of salt because these, these people planned it on their little Zoom calls. They planned every single bit of it. They knew who would be there, how they would be there. They tracked every move. Maybe they're your new friends on Parlor that you didn't see. Because it seems like the FBI was all over Parlor. And what happened? Oh, friend, that's right. Their server was supposedly banned. Want to make a bet that it was handed over to the FBI? How much you want to make a bet? Kind of like the same shit that happened with Twitter. Every single person that was in D.C. was purged from Twitter. And they handed over all your communications. Same shit happened to Parler. And with Parler, you gave them your driver's license, your passports, your military IDs. I am telling you, <laughs> we're just going to, okay, I'm just going to leave it there for now. Let's take a listen to this clown. President and CEO of the Truman Center for National Policy. We are really thrilled to welcome you here tonight to the launch of a new Truman Center Task Force report, Transforming State Pathways to a More Just, Equitable, and Innovative Institution. Truman is an impact community for national security leaders, and together we unite, build, and lead to advance whole of society American leadership for human rights, inclusion, prosperity, and security at home and abroad. Before we listen to her, and unfortunately I can't put the, you know, the comment on there, but someone on Twitch said, if you have the proof that January 6th was planned on a Zoom call, what the heck, get it out there on the news, use it for court. Um, I guess you're probably new to Tori Says because all those Zoom calls were released in the summer and no journalist covered it. Hence why I say, be careful who you follow. So I'm just pointing that out. It's the same damn Zoom calls that everybody had it. So I just wanted to point that out uh, so uh, people understand it. So here's their task force about uh, maneuvering and how our State Department should work. Folks, tonight is a celebration uh, of the importance of diplomacy and of the hard fought work of our report authors and esteemed co-chairs. But it's also a night for reflection and for humility. The State Department, our nation's leading foreign affairs agency, is in need of repair. And some of that repair work is a result of deferred maintenance over many years, while other concerns are more recent. 
And at Truman, we saw this enormous opportunity to offer bold but really achievable recommendations for a transformation that begins with rebuilding trust amongst a workforce that has long missed out on so much opportunity um, and has had a, a tough number of years. But to do that, we seek to advance transparency and accountability to build a more resilient organization and to do it all through a lens of diversity. We know that foreign policy starts at How many times throughout the years have I said, damn, Pompeo, your galoshes, the swamp's gonna get in your boots. How many times did President Trump call them the deep state department? Hmm? Tons of times. Here's where you listen to these leaders that are the face of America outside of our borders and pushing the foreign aid, making sure that we stay in these global organizations because we must, making sure that we provide foreign aid. We must do this, right? Here they go. Everyone, all of us. The recommendations that are in this report, I have... Damn, what's that map over there behind her? I'm just saying. Read it, they are brilliant, all of them. I think it is going to be an incredible tool for the Department of State. It will be an amazing addition to the toolkit that the department has, and that we are in a particular time where we have had leadership from the president, from the Secretary of State being very clear that they are down with this project. That's so great. And I just wanted to point out, I have people saying, are they any different to the SESs? Stop listening to these know-it-alls that are telling you about SESs, okay? SESs is just an exclusive club where you get more money and a little bit more movement, okay? Stop listening to these idiots that are telling you when they don't know, they've never waited in the freaking swamp. They don't have sources. The only person you should listen to about swamp stuff in regards to military operations, I would highly suggest is General Flynn. He knows all their dirty laundry. So for me, I'm just saying, for me, I've been waiting with these guys for a long, long time. I made sure I had super dry galoshes that were up to my thighs. I paid attention. I took notes and I made sure to speak where I could because for anyone saying, oh, you didn't say anything. Who was I going to tell? CNN? Let me guess. Fox. Let me guess. A senator. Wait, stop. Maybe Congress. Maybe I should complain to the president who was giving the orders. Bush, Obama, Clinton. Maybe I should tell them because then, yeah. Or maybe I should tell the CIA director or the DNI. Oh, wait. The OIG, that's who I have to go to. I have to go to the head of a division and tell them, right? Because they're going to help me, right? They were all part of it. Don't you understand that? How do people that have this information tell? Tell you? I mean, huh. media is not listening. I think, I think. I've just demonstrated that. Three years of dropping facts dropping hardcore truths that no one covered. What does that tell you? That's right. Controlled opposition. Or maybe, I don't trust you. And it's like, okay, don't trust me. What about the information? See, that's the problem with some people. That they don't realize that you can't tell. Should I have run, I don't know, to Maduro and told? Maybe I should have climbed you know, the Statue of Liberty 
and created a stunt and talk so I could look crazy, right? Or maybe I should have just, uh, you know, put it on a blog in the background where no one's going to watch it. Or maybe, you know, I would have uh, <laughs> told someone that would have told someone without me being able to cover it. No, I kept my mouth shut. I did whatever I could. And so that's the way it is. When you see your journalists or your you know, source of information, talk about SESs like they're the epitome. Come on. Look at the smile on their faces. They're so excited. They got a hold of the real agency. CIA, it's shattered. There's good people in there. And then there's really bad people. But the really bad people of the agency don't stay within the agency. Come on. They work for the State Department, the Department of Justice, the FBI, like Peter Strzok. He wasn't FBI. He was just slotted in there. Hello. He was agency. Bruce Orr. Hello. He was agency. He just had a job sitting in the DOJ to report back to who he needed to report to. That's how it works. Oh, but so-and-so is a senator. He's agency. What's the agency? Well, I like to call it agency because the CIA actually has some really good people. There are really good people. But again, who do they tell? I mean, I'm just saying. The people that were inspecting the election machines, the group, I was checking the source code. An independent private group, well, independent, I mean, they were part of Dominion Enterprises. They were partnering with Dominion Enterprises. Oh, but not directly with the, you know, ballot side. It was another side of the main parent company. But, you know, they were still partners. They even had an employee from SISA working at NCC Group. I mean, come on. Can't you see it? It's like all the chips are stacked against you. And here they are coming out into public to tell the world we're here, we're turning up, and we're taking over. Take it. Like I said, Ebola. You know what was funny? That video that was going around where the guy was talking about, oh, look, it's uh, MRC5, fetal lung tissue, and monkey kidney DNA. Oh, wait, didn't we talk about resting monkeys that were dying from Ebola? I mean, only the monkeys were dying, like bleeding on the inside out. The humans were just getting a little bit sick. So wait, if you get monkey DNA, holy crap, do you get resting Ebola and die? Oh, kind of like H1N1, where you got pig DNA, hence why it's called the swine flu, because they cultivated the H1N1 vaccine in porcine cells, which means it's pig. And sorry to all my Muslim listeners, but yeah, you've got pig DNA now inside you. So again, when I say no one can force you to take a vaccine, when I say that they've planned this shit from day one, I mean, Mr. Christian had a vision. He so did. That they intend to make a difference and that they welcome the tools, the support, and the partnership 
of all of us who are working on this to do better in the Department of State. The last thing I really want to say is again, how privileged I feel to associate with this body of work. The men and women who worked on this, and I will tell you there were some lively discussions as we went through these recommendations, but they are fully informed, factual, well-supported, and worthy of consideration and use if that's going to work. And I will close out with that. I look forward to hearing the discussion. Thank you. Damn, did you see the eyeballs? And just to clarify, so you understand, swine flu, pig flu. Oh, it's like you're getting the flu from pigs. Well, why would I be able to get a zoonic disease or flu or virus if I don't have their DNA? It doesn't work with me. See, this is why a cat that's sick can't give you their sickness because you don't have cat DNA in you. But, oh, Remember, I told you I was an intern at the CDC where I got fired in 2008 and we were investigating the vaccine. And I said, hey, I think using pork cells would be a bad idea because um, we can get zoonic transfer. I mean, that's how the avion flu happened because they were using avion cells. And I said it would be haram for Muslims. Hmm. I got fired. <laughs> I was so proud of that report too. I was so proud. And when I came in on Monday, they had a box waiting for me at the security desk. I was like, dang. Okay. That's what's up. So H1N1, the vaccine, made people sick with the pig flu because it was created with pig DNA. Now they're giving you a COVID vaccine that has monkey DNA, specifically that of Reston monkeys. Oh, and remember, Reston Ebola is just a really bad flu for human beings. Remember where they had formaldehyde, the whole place, they were terrified. They, that was the first Ebola outbreak, remember? But it didn't do anything to the humans. All the monkeys dropped dead and they were bleeding from their eyes, but it didn't do anything from humans. But now this vaccine has monkey DNA and we're getting Ebola outbreaks. What? 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 Dang. Dang. So the question is, what do we do? They've got it stacked against you. I told you because I could see it a mile away, probably because I already knew. Why didn't you say anything earlier? Do you think I'm not telling the people that need to hear it? Well, I'm trying. I'm really, really trying. But there's a lot of gatekeepers, tons of fucking gatekeepers. They don't want, they hate you. They want to kill you. They want you to understand that you must know your place. But it was just a coincidence that I talked about Ebola and I showed you how it works. It was just a coincidence that, huh, you know, Monkey DNA is in your vaccine. <sighs> you know, I'm just saying, don't hate the messenger. You can hate the message, but truth is truth, ugly or not. When you're messing with your genetic code, damn, they will take you out. And remember, you're a cohort. So some of you get monkey DNA. Some of you will get something else because they're all different in every region. 
When you go to the doctor, they have your social security number, your ID, your insurance. They track you. They know where you're going and they know what vaccine they need to give you. See, so-and-so with five kids on welfare. Yeah, we want her to live. Give her this vaccine because she's going to train her kids to listen to us. So-and-so, he owns like three AR-15s, has a farm, loves to go dirt, you know, whatever. And rah, America, you give him that vaccine. You see, that's how you control experiments. Even on FDA approved vaccines, they control all the information. Zip code so-and-so that goes to the county clinic will all get this. Zip code so-and-so will get this. You think I'm BSing you? Why don't you do some FOIA requests and see what the NIH is holding on you? Why don't you just think back to that time that you went to get the tetanus shot and they wanted to give you the triple shot, not the single. And then why don't you remember how when you got a shot, whooping cough, flu, how they scanned barcodes on two different systems. Some of you may have sat in your doctor's office and didn't see all that shit. But if you were in the ER, I guarantee you would have seen them scanning it. They have you categorized. You're in a catalog of yes, keep them. No, don't keep them. You think I'm joking? But I'm here to tell you that in the end, God wins. And that's what counts. And I'm way over my time, way over my time. We'll continue the conversation on these crazy people. I think uh, that was a, a good introduction for all of you to get to know the real swamp and um, what these people are really like, how they're the architects of your reality, the architects of our foreign policy and how they control almost everything. So when I say hold those that you have been following, giving you whatever information you think is right, accountable, I mean it. Because it's really sad, really sad that, um, that uh, they don't, They don't put you first. When most of them started talking and tweeting and um, putting out videos because they cared. And that's what sucks. You know, I get really angry and enraged when I watch um, all of you. Um, just not knowing what to do. When I watch people, you know, putting into the, the, the chat, tell me who to follow. It's like, stop looking at me. Look at the facts, look at the truth and follow it. But you have every right to be angry at those that betray you. You have every right to hold them accountable and starve them out. That's the only way it moves forward. We already know what the left is doing. You already know now that they're in full control of your foreign policy, right? So right now, we're on this footing. The only thing we need to do as a people is to wake the other side up. Now you can't go there and tell them, hey, they're giving you monkey DNA and you're gonna die from Ebola. They're gonna just put that tinfoil hat on you. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like psh, conspiracy theories have been right all along. I mean, wake up, but you can't do that. 
what you need to do is bring the olive branch across the aisle. And hopefully with what we're going to do with the We Are The News movement, it can bring them on. What we're going to do as a people, we're going to bring them on. You can't Bible thump to them. You can't patriotic flag to them. You can't love your country to them. You can't, we need a border to them because those are triggers. They've been conditioned. So you have to find a way to convey your message. So that's, that's key. Another thing is making sure that the truth is out there. Please stop asking me who to follow. I have no problem calling out idiots live on air. I'll tell it to their face. Okay? I'm not the type of person that'll do some snide comment and leave it on the side. I have no problem telling anyone how I feel. You need to be on alert. Like, okay. How's this? The migrants, the illegal migrants. A hundred of them come through the border. Fifty of them work their asses off for a dollar an hour because they were promised a better America. The other 50, they're probably dead or somewhere cycled in the sex trafficking industry, slave industry. They have the other 50 that are working their asses off are looking for a way out, right? We don't want illegal migrants because it makes them vulnerable, right? But that's not what they hear when you want a wall. They don't hear that. All they hear is racism. They don't hear about the Hondurans, 40 Hondurans locked in a house in Illinois as slaves. They don't hear about the 500 kids that just disappeared one day because they had no ID. They don't hear that. They hear racism. You have to put it through the right way. And when stories come up where the truth is said, they shut that down so quick. The border is necessary because it cuts down trafficking. The border is necessary because it cuts down drug trafficking. We want people to come in right? But it's not like Mexico's, well, it is because they're run by the cartels, which is another thing. The cartels are back and they're stronger than ever. And that's the thing. They will force you into submission. So the one thing you all have to think about within your local communities as we launch the We Are The News is to think, what can I do within my local community that would make sense to the person that thinks that their life matters more than someone else. I mean, they're so far gone that, you know, attacking someone who doesn't have pigment in skin is okay, right? We got Illinois paying reparations because they weren't allowed to have housing until the 60s. It's like, what? I guess the Greeks need to do that shit too because we were considered black and colored and we weren't allowed to buy houses too back then. I'm just saying. It's, it's the most ridiculous thing. So you're so impoverished that you need a handout because someone like your great grandmother may have been unable to buy a house because they were colored. Are you kidding? That's what kind of loser you are. You need $500 to make yourself feel better 
Because that's all you're going to get. That is all you're going to get. Now, I'm like on my soapbox, but I want you guys to understand, no matter how many times truth comes out, people suffocate it. One is because they want to be the center of it. It's always, I broke the story. I mean, with Tracy Beans, we got into it once about an article. She's like, you plagiarized. I was like, fuck you. No, I didn't. That shit was on before. She just kept going and going. And I was like, listen, man, whatever. I don't care. The story's out, so nobody cares. The truth is, I had written that a long, long time. Do you know how many, how many things I had in draft? And putting it back there, that was ridiculous. Like, uh, that was so insulting. Maybe your researcher right? Took mine. But because my site was a little site, it didn't count. So someone could just take my thing, copy it. She saw that it sounded really similar. And she believed her guy over me that it was time stamped on my WordPress. But you know, whatever. Regardless, I let it go. Cause it's like news is news. I, I really don't care. You know, she just needs to watch out who writes for her. I'm just saying, because they thought, oh, she's a nobody. No one reads her stuff. You know, it's like those nobody sites where people troll it for news. That's what journalists do. You know that, right? They go into these places where people blog and then they steal the story and then they push it as their own. That's what they do. I'm just saying, that's what they do. They want to be first at everything. It doesn't matter if you're first. It doesn't matter if you're last. It's the quality of it, right? What does it say? How does it do? That's fact. That's fact. So that's one, one reason they won't report truth is because it wasn't first for them. So they don't need to report it because then that's giving credence to the other person that they saw the story come from. And therefore their listenership, their readership will go to that person for news. Cause that person broke the story. See, that's the way the mentality works. So that's number one on your more visible ones. Then you have the other ones that refuse to acknowledge who the fuck I am just saying. So, because they'll lose a lot of money in t-shirt sales. So they just stick to their script and say, as long as we ignore that person, they'll go away. No one's going to listen. The problem is while all of you are preaching God and truth, the one axiom we all know is that the truth comes out and it shines brighter than anything. You can cast an umbrella the size of the universe. The truth will not be hidden and it will find its way out of the shade. It always does. It always does. That's the way it is. So for those of you, you know, that are on Gab, for example, you'll see that all of them thump each other. And then you have to sit back and think to yourself, okay, what has this person contributed other than posting fun stuff or reactive stories? That's what you have to think about. Because I've seen a lot of trolls come out. I got so enraged yesterday that within like a few minutes, we had the person's minutes, everything on that person. I had, yep, everything. And I was so evil. I was like, dude, mess with me. You could say whatever you want about me. Touch my, talk about my kids again. I will make your life miserable. I already have eyes in your area. I am going to make your life miserable. See I got really, really evil. That's where that evilness came out, you know, and I didn't like it. And I want you guys um, to think about this today. You've just been shown the people that really run our foreign policy, the people that really run the nuclear energy, the people that, you know, are constantly with the Chinese TV, the people that 
are really excited because now Biden's in and Kamala. And remember, Podesta, Kissinger, all of these people ran through there. So I want you to think about it for a second. You never heard of them. So imagine how many other faces are around that you never heard of that are causing so much harm to our nation, to our liberties, to our children, to our future, to our country. And you know what? Two fellows from the Truman National Security Council were actually very close to the president. And that's the thing. There's no list with their fellows. They hide it. There's no list for their fellows. You only find them if they're acknowledged on a video. There's no list. I mean, even people that have been in for a while haven't even heard about it. You know, the person that actually was that cue to me to talk about it was a person that worked within these organizations for years. They know everything there is to know. And they said, do you know about this? And I was like, ooh, who told you that? So-and-so. I was like, hmm, I guess I need to talk about it. Because even if you're working within areas like the DOJ, the State Department, the agency, you rarely hear about this. Rarely hear about this. And I'll tell you, when the president, after the January 6th event, do you know who came near them? Yale professors rubbing their hands to get into the State Department. <sighs> Called that person out right away. Nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. Who do you think you are calling them out? I'm like, well, haven't been wrong yet. And there we go. So truth is really, really hurtful because it shows you that you've been duped that you don't know what's going on, that you're sleepwalking. And that hurts everybody's ego. So again, take it as you will. You know, since I'm over, you know what? I want to share something with you guys. You want to you watch something fun? So there's a guy I watch on YouTube called Mr. Balin. Balin. Have you ever watched him? This is just entertainment. Have you watched him? Yeah, he's pretty cool. Um, I know about this. This is cray cray. There was actually like a formal report about this. It's a it's a spooky story about um, OPR. It's it's like a lookout point in Afghanistan. Just take a listen. In June of 2009, U.S. and NATO forces surged into Afghanistan. Troop numbers escalated dramatically in preparation for this massive offensive against the Taliban. During this surge, a very small team of Marines, eight Marines, were given a mission to go to an observation post in Helmand province, where a group of British soldiers were stationed at the time. An observation post, or OP, as it's called in the military, is any location where you're able to observe hence the name. Most OPs, if not all OPs, are located on high ground because that provides you the best view. OPs are very strategically valuable. You have the higher ground and you can see what's going on around you. And so as a result, OPs become prime targets for attack. Now, the OP that these Marines were going to, OP Rock, was a little bit unique. 
It was strategically very important, but it didn't really have the higher ground. All around it were other large pieces of terrain, which meant if you poke your head up for too long, you might get shot from a sniper on the mountain. And so OP Rock was like a very dangerous and isolated place to be. Not to mention laughably small and had almost no amenities. There was basically a couple of HESCO barriers, those big brown squares that get filled with sand and dirt to stop bullets. And then, you know, not even cots. They slept literally on the ground on sleeping pads and a couple of gilly tents overhead. That was about it. And so these Marines were going to be there for 60 days where they were not going to be able to go anywhere. They were just isolated and stuck on this tiny little wasteland in the middle of Afghanistan. The eight Marines were led by Sergeant Green and his second in command was Corporal Lena. The other six junior Marines were Zolik, Hoyt, Wilson, Parker, Smith, and Gibbs. After driving their up-armored vehicles all the way through the snaking pass, they get to OP Rock, and the British soldiers are there anxiously waiting for them. Normally, anytime you turn over with any other unit, you do something called turnover operations, where because you're new to the area, you want to go out and do like a presence patrol or something to get a feel for the area with the people who have been there, to kind of give you a lay of the land and say, hey, Look out for this area. We think there's IEDs over there. Remember, if you're over here, you're in plain sight of the enemy. They can shoot you. But when they got there, the British were so anxious to leave. They did not do turnover ops. The British just looked totally weathered and beaten down and ragged like they'd been fighting at OP Rock for decades. But they'd only been there for 60 days, the same amount of time that these Marines are about to be there. And before they leave, one of the British soldiers turns and says, hey, just so you know, if you dig anything up here, just put it back. And the Marines look at him like, what are you talking about? And he doesn't elaborate. He just says again, if you dig anything up, just put it back. Trust me. So that night, the men have settled into their new home for the next 60 days. And the way it works on any base in the world, but certainly in a war zone, is there's always someone manning a guard post. And so the first night, it happened to be Corporal Lena's turn to be on watch. Corporal Lena is the second in command of these eight Marines. And he was up in the guard tower. And you got to put yourself in his mind, okay? Even if you've never been to Afghanistan, just imagine being out in the middle of nowhere, like in the middle of a mountainous desert with no village, no people, no anything. But at the same time, you are hanging it out there. You are totally exposed. There are people in the mountains around you that want to kill you, for sure. And it's you and seven other sleeping people, right, in your little tiny OP. All you got is a radio where you can call back to your main base that's far enough away that if something bad happened, you better hope that one, you can get through to them, and two, they can get over here as quickly as they can. And the great fear when you're in these remote locations is that you're gonna get ambushed. There's so many stories about these complex attacks being launched on these small little outposts where all of a sudden, groups like these eight Marines just get totally overrun by the Taliban. So it's a terrifying thing. When I was in Afghanistan, I didn't stand all that much guard duty, but when I did, you know, you're up, you're up in the shack and you're kind of looking out into this like vast expanse of kind of nothingness. And you're wondering like, are people watching me right now? You know, is someone taking aim at me right now? I mean, you're protected and you're, you're doing all the things you're supposed to do, but nighttime in Afghanistan, standing guard duty, it's very eerie. And so this first night, Lena is up there, it's very quiet, and his radio that's right next to him, like imagine like a big walkie-talkie, right? Military-grade radio, it starts crackling. 
military radios, at least American military radios, are from the 1950s, and they've basically not changed. They're very durable, and they work, but it's not uncommon for them to falter, and that's why we have people that specialize in just radios that can fix these things for us, because if you lose your line of communication, you, you're screwed. And so he's sitting there, and he starts hearing crackling on the radio, and so he, he just he notices it, but he doesn't think much of it. And the crackling stops and he's looking out into the mountainside and he's kind of looking around just doing his typical guard duty then the crackling picks up again and he can hear someone speaking in the radio it didn't sound like english it didn't sound like even words necessarily but it was a little bit louder now he's really paying attention to it because he was worried his radio might be going bad he first took the battery off looked at it blew it off reconnected the battery rebooted it and put it back down and he's a little more keyed into his radio and then a couple minutes later he hears this cracking and now he can clearly hear someone's voice and it sounds like russian he thinks someone is speaking in russian this is an encrypted radio you're not picking up random signals all over the place you you only are picking up people that have your crypto and it doesn't make any sense to pick up somebody else's voice this has to be someone on your team and so he thinks okay i'll just i'll check in with the main base because my guys are all asleep right here they're all sleeping right there seven of them there's no beds they're laying on the ground right there i can count them no one's on the radio so he picks up the radio and he calls into the main base and he says hey is anybody pushing traffic out this way to op rock and like right away they get a response from from the main base that says no we're, we're not pushing or receiving traffic lean is not terrified about this but he's like okay there's something going on with the radio the crackling and gurgling and weird sounds would persist throughout the night to the point where the next morning when the next guard came on duty, he said, hey, I think there's something strange going on with the radio. You should probably go switch it out and get somebody else's radio while you're up here. Lena's relieved of guard duty and he goes down to check on the other Marines. And at this point, everybody's awake and you know it's the start of their first full day at OP Rock. And because they have nothing else to do besides defend it, they start taking stock of how well fortified is it? What are some ways that we can improve this place? And they notice that there's a trench dug around the inside of, of OP Rock, basically right up against the Hescos, that allows anyone to stand and not be shutting out of OP and run the risk of getting shot by a sniper. And they're looking at it and they're thinking to themselves, it's not deep enough. It's maybe a couple feet down. You're certainly not gonna be able to stand on this trench. You'll totally be exposed. And they thought, why didn't the British, who were here for 60 days, why didn't they dig a deeper trench? And so Lena and the rest of the Marines decide they're going to spend that day digging the trench a little bit deeper and a little bit wider. As they're digging, Lena hits something metal in the trench and he pulls it out and it's like this metal stake, like an engineering stake. And he brushes off the dirt on the stake and he's looking at it and he can see some foreign writing and it looks like Russian writing. And he's thinking to himself, oh, that's not that weird. Back in the 80s, the Russians were here. And it's totally possible that they may have left some of their gear here and it got buried. About 10 meters away from Lena is one of the younger Marines named Wilson who's digging. And at some point he hits the ground and like a pocket in the soil opens up. And he sees there's some pottery and some pieces of what look like ceramics that are inside of this, this hole. And after pulling out some of the plates and pots, they pull out a huge human bone, a femur, your leg bone. They ultimately decide to tuck the leg bone back into where it was and they stop digging in that area and they continue to dig in the other sections of the trench. But they couldn't dig more than a couple inches before running into more human remains. And by the end of the day, they had unearthed 
dozens of skeletons inside of this trench. And so they realized that this is probably what the British meant when they said, if you dig something up, put it back. A couple of weeks go by and the Marines at this point have accepted that they live in a very creepy place. And on day 13 of being at OP Rock, Hoyt, who had just turned 20 years old, is up on guard duty. As he's sitting there, he starts getting this really uncomfortable feeling that someone is right behind him. And so at one point, he turns around to look at what's behind him, basically looking back into the camp itself. And now coming from outside the wire where he had just been looking, he hears this horrible blood-curdling scream. He turns around and he's looking out. He's got his night vision goggles on. He's looking around for anything. And all of a sudden, a couple hundred meters away, he sees a man running between one bush to another bush. Now they know that at any time they could get attacked. So they're not thinking that this could be anything other than the Taliban coming to attack them. And so the other Marines have jumped up because they heard the scream and they're looking to Hoyt to be like, what's going on? Hoyt is saying to them, I got a guy, he's about 200 meters away. I just saw him running right to left. Lena runs over to the edge of the HESCO and he raises his rifle with a thermal imager on it. And he's looking out and there's no heat signature out there. It's totally cold. There's no animals, there's no people, certainly, there's nothing. And Lena is yelling to Hoyt, where is he? Where do I need to look? And Hoyt's saying, he's right there. I just saw him go behind that bush. But Lena is looking out and he can't see anything on thermal. And he's like, I don't see anything. There's no one out there. Marines also had a dog that they inherited from the British soldiers that had been there. Her name was Ugly Betty. They loved Ugly Betty. They took care of her. And she was apparently really good at identifying when people were coming towards the OP. So she was a great watchdog. And this whole time, she had been looking in the same direction that Hoyt had seen this figure. And she is barking like a maniac. And even after they're looking with thermal and they can't see anyone out there, they can't get Betty to calm down. She's completely transfixed on the area where Hoyt had seen this figure. So for the rest of the night, the Marines are totally on guard, anticipating at any moment that they're going to get attacked. Someone's going to take a shot. They're going to throw a grenade in because we lost this guy who was right there in front of us. So eventually, the next day, when they didn't get attacked, they just kind of said, okay, and they moved on and just figured it was an anomaly. Another couple of weeks later, on day 26, Zolik, who's another one of the younger Marines, was on guard duty, and it was really hot. He remembers even taking his helmet off because he was sweating so bad. And then at some point, while he's just looking out into the vast open nothingness, he said that the temperature dropped inside of the shack dramatically, so much so that he actually felt cold. There was no breeze. There was no reason for it to be getting cold. And as he's thinking to himself, like, is there a storm coming in or a, a cold front coming in? He starts feeling like someone's standing behind him. And he keeps looking over his shoulder and no one's there. He's in this tiny little shack. And he just, he's feeling creeped out. And all of a sudden he starts hearing whispering from behind him, not on the radio, but like in the shack with him. And he keeps turning around and he keeps thinking like, am I hearing things? Am I losing my mind? And he starts hearing footsteps on the roof of his shack. And that's when he thinks, oh, Smith, who was the kind of class clown of the group, is playing a joke on me. He must be whispering outside. I bet he climbed up on top and he's screwing with me. So he jumps out of the shack and looks up, expecting to see Smith standing on the roof of the guard shack. But no one's on the guard shack. At this point, Zolik's pretty spooked. He has a quick search on either side of the guard shack, thinking maybe Smith is there, but no one's there. And then he turns around and, of course, sees that the other seven Marines are all asleep. So it wasn't Smith. It wasn't any of his teammates. At this point, he goes back in the shack and he raises his rifle and he's looking through his thermal scope. So any human would light up like a Christmas tree if you, if you saw them on a thermal. And he's scanning outside all around, thinking, did, did I hear someone who's out there? 
because they had that weird run in two weeks earlier with that random person that they could never find. He's thinking maybe there's somebody else out here. And as he's scanning, he sees a man standing a couple hundred meters away with his fists raised like this. Zolik was so caught off guard from the way he was standing that he actually lowered his rifle to look because the moon was pretty bright. The illumination was pretty good. And he looked, he couldn't really see him again. So he brought his rifle back up and now through his thermal, the figure was gone. Zolik in interviews has admitted that he was really stressed out about being at OP Rock. He was really down. I think of all the Marines there, he was depressed. He did not want to be there. He felt like he was experiencing real combat fatigue. And he thought at this that he's losing his mind between the whispering and the footsteps on the roof and seeing this person with his fist raised. And so instead of telling people that he had potentially just seen this person out along the perimeter of their OP, he started to convince himself that you're just losing your mind. You're stressed and you're hallucinating. You just got to calm down. For the rest of the night, he would not see the figure on his thermal or anybody out there, but he would hear whispering behind him. He kept hearing footsteps on the roof, but he would go out and no one would be there. So by the time the sun came up, he really thought that he was kind of losing his mind. And so he went to his leadership, Sergeant Green and Corporal Lena, and he told them about what had happened the night before, about you know seeing the figure that had disappeared and hearing these whispers and the footsteps. I mean, he really thought that he was losing it and he requested to be transferred and they granted it to him. And the other seven Marines were really upset about that. They felt like he was kind of abandoning them. And they were really critical of the reason for him leaving. They're like, oh, you're just playing the crazy card. You're just making that up so you can leave this crappy place that we don't want to be. So they were not taking seriously what he claimed happened. They just believed he was using the crazy card to get out of being at OP Rock. Just a couple of days after Zolik's departure, Lena is on guard duty in that guard shack, and as he's looking out, Ugly Betty starts barking really aggressively towards the area that Lena is looking at. And so he raises his night vision goggles and he's scanning the mountainside looking for any sign of people that perhaps Ugly Betty has sensed. And he stops when he sees what he believes is a Taliban scout standing on the mountainside, who's pretty far away, a few hundred meters away. And he switches to his thermal scope to confirm that it's a person before he engages. And when he raises his thermal scope, there's nobody there. There's no heat signature anywhere. But Ugly Betty is still barking like a maniac in the direction of where this potential scout was standing. And so Lena goes back to his night vision goggles like a second later, and he's looking and he sees the same scout now about 100 meters closer to him, way closer to him, like impossible to cover that distance in that amount of time. He practically falls over when he sees it. He switches to his thermal and he's getting ready to engage, but there's nothing there. And this is all happening in a matter of seconds. He goes back to his NVGs and he's looking and there's nothing there. And as he's about to go to his thermal for one last look, he feels a tap on his shoulder, which he believes is going to be one of the other Marines that must have heard him frantically moving around in the guard shack. And when he turns, there's no one there. There's no one anywhere near the shack. All seven are asleep in the middle of the camp. At this point, Lena felt bad because he was critical of Zolik, who had left because he had heard voices and seen apparitions out in the distance. And here's Lena, the second in command of the group, having the exact same experience. But over the next 10 days, Hoyt, Smith, and Wilson would all have very similar experiences in that guard shack. And after a while, they all began sharing their stories, and they all realized that Zolik probably wasn't lying, and we were we were unfair to be critical of him because we've all experienced this now. Then on day 59, the day before they're scheduled to leave, all of their radios go dead, all of them. And Lena goes over to Gibbs, who was their comms guy, 
And he's like, what's going on? And Gibbs was like, I've been working on the radios this whole time we're here. I've changed nothing. They've always worked. Now they did have a satellite phone, but it was an unreliable way to get in touch with reinforcements if you really needed it. They're pretty much isolated at this point, And they're all just sitting there just hoping they can get through one more night without any problems. Wilson is the one actually in the guard shack. And then all of a sudden, machine gun fire opens up right outside of their base. And Wilson is totally caught off guard. He has no idea where it's coming from. He's trying to call it out to the guys where they're getting shot from. And all of the Marines are scrambling to the walls. They're taking cover behind the Hescos. And as they're laying there, Lena runs up into the guard shack with Wilson. He's like, he grabs him and he's like, where are they shooting us from? And Wilson's like, I have no idea. And it's like, so, it's so loud. There's all this gunfire coming in at them. And as Lena and Wilson are trying to figure out where this is coming from, they hear the distinctive sound of an RPG fired at them. It's a rocket propelled grenade. It's like a whistling sound and they know it's going to hit them at any moment. The two of them brace for impact and they hear the sound of this RPG smashing inside of the OP. And the machine gun fire is just continuing. It's a nonstop. And so a couple of the other younger Marines basically low crawled their way into the trench where they were protected from these rounds. And they're thinking like, we got to make sure no one's in the trenches. And so they start clearing the trenches, but no one's in the trench. And it's just this constant barrage of gunfire. They have no idea where it's coming from. And then just as suddenly as it started, the gunfire stops and it's silent. As soon as the shooting stopped, the Marines did not just poke their head up and say, everything's fine now. If you're being shot at, you assume that even if there's a break in the gunfire, they're going to start shooting at you again. And so for hours, they're just like waiting for the next round of fire to start, but they don't even know where it's coming from. And they're kind of isolated and exposed. So they're all just kind of like hunkered down against the Hescos waiting to respond to the next volley of fire. But it never comes. And when the sun comes up, they're able to take stock of the damage to their OP from all the machine gun fire and from the rocket propelled grenade. But there's no damage. No one had ever been shooting at the OP. There was no damage. So they had no explanation for it. So when reinforcements arrived, they just wanted to pack their stuff up and get the heck out of there. And they did. After leaving OP Rock, very shortly after, Smith, Parker, and Diggs, three of the eight Marines that were there, were all killed in Afghanistan in separate instances. And then Sergeant Green, who was their leader, was very badly injured in an IED blast. Lena believes that when they were digging out those trenches and finding all those bones, that they unleashed something. It turned out a lot of people lost their lives on that little strip of rock. When the Russians invaded Afghanistan, they captured OP Rock and killed all of the Mujahideen that were located at OP Rock. Then the Taliban came in and they took back OP Rock from the Russians and killed all the Russians that were at OP Rock. Then Americans came in and took back OP Rock from the Taliban, killing all the Taliban that were there. So you have all these people, probably dozens and dozens of people that at one point have been holding OP Rock, that had all been killed at OP Rock. And so Lena believes that it's only a matter of time before this curse that they unleashed comes back to get him. So I'd love to get your reaction. What do you think happened at OP Rock? Is this paranormal or is there a rational? Hey, so let me tell you, that place is super creepy. For anyone that has been there, you know what's up. It is a super creepy place, very strategic position, but very, very creepy. Um, I, you know, I was surprised that I um, was able to find someone talking about the story. He's actually an ex-Navy SEAL. Um, so it was it was interesting to see it on, you know, on his feed. Um, you know, at night when I lay down, I watch different things. 
And even when I'm on my computer, I now have two screens. That means I have more squares open. I watch a lot of things at the same time. So I thought that was a fun, like creepy ghost story that's actually documented. So uh, for those of you on Twitch, we're going to raid and I'm going to try to find a raid for um, Trovo as well. Uh, I, I, I unloaded a lot of information today for you guys. I introduced you to an organization that a lot of people don't know about. And like I said, you know, I was kind of shocked that um, someone that I know um, that has been working in these trenches for a very, very long time hadn't even heard of uh, the Truman National Security Institute. Well, now it's council and project, right? They, the same thing. It's a recycle name, like Blackrock. So um, I would uh, say it's, 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 it's bigger than the Atlantic Council. They have more influence than the Atlantic Council. Those are mainstream. I want you to think of them as brands. You're getting closer to the puppet masters with this. That's what I want to point out to you. This is going to be one of the most important episodes, like I said, with the Ebola one, too, is really important. So, um, again, hold those that have the platforms accountable. The information was being given, and even the information on the Truman National Security Institute was being dripped to people that, you know, I believed would have done something for the people because they seemed legitimately interested in it. When you're not in proximity and when you don't want to violate someone else's privacy, because that's a big deal. When you have the ability to see everything about someone, you have to set boundaries. And, you know, I have very strong boundaries. And yesterday I was very embarrassed of myself for not setting those boundaries, um, you know, because, you know, someone was bothering my my child. And, and that's a big deal. So... This is uh, this is not at the don't listen to the SES stuff or anything, right? Those are big, they are a big deal. It's kind of like a tenured professor, they can't kick you out, <laughs> you're like above everyone, but they're not the puppet masters. You, but you are one step closer to the center of that onion. On that note, everyone, God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Seven Nation Army couldn't hold me back They're gonna rip it off Taking their time right behind my back And I'm talking to myself at 